Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and thank you for listening to the 31st episode of the show. Before we start today, I wanted to just let you know about an exciting competition I'm going to be running between this episode and the next. Square Enix have been very kind in giving me a Steam copy of the brand new Deus Ex Mankind Divided, so I would love to be able to give it to one of the listeners of the show, um, but I'd like to make it a little interesting and a little fun. Um, so to enter the competition this week uh, and to be with the chance of winning, all you have to do is take a picture of yourself listening to the show while you're playing your favorite game. So while you're playing your favorite game, headphones in, listening to final games on your phone or whatever, just send a picture in and then you'll be in a chance with winning a Steam copy of Deus Ex Mankind Divided. And once you've taken your pick, you can tweet it to at Final Games Show, or you can send it in an email to finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. So I look forward to seeing some of your pictures, and I'll announce the winner next week. But for now, it's time to talk deserted guests. And this week, I have a wonderful guest who, for anyone who has watched one of his Friday Features videos, might be able to guess already what may be appearing on his list today. My guest this week is the deputy editor of the YouTube channel PlayStation Access. He's been with the PlayStation Access team since 2001, creating hilarious videos about everything PlayStation every week. His Friday feature videos have become synonymous with the channel and a highlight of my own week personally. As well as video work, my guest has also written for publications such as Official PlayStation Magazine, Edge and Games Master. My guest this week is the Delson-hating, very lovely Mr. Rob Pearson. Hello, Rob! (laughs) Hello, Liam. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. How are you doing today, Rob? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I just want to, yeah, you, you mentioned that I've been working with PlayStation Action since 2001. That's a very long time. That, <laughs> actually... it, it is becoming quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been, yeah, since, 20, since 2011. You had me working there for 15 years. Which was, oh, uh, tw- before, before <laughs> even the dawn of YouTube, which would have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even notice I said that. I do apologise. <laughs> it is very early in the morning here in yeah, Japan. I know. <laughs> I, yeah, I apologise about that as well. I've got no. six thirty a.m. or something ridiculous. <laughs> it's all worth it. It's all worth it. <laughs> yes. Going back, yes. So Rob has been at PlayStation Access not since two thousand and one, since no. twenty eleven. I didn't yeah. read my own script very well then. Um, <laughs> Rob, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on today. So you are the man who makes the Friday feature videos and some wonderful videos for PlayStation Access. Um, yes. But how did you get to where you are? I We've had Nathan, your colleague, on the show before, and he has yep. given a little insight into how you started at PlayStation Access. I think there was something about a magazine with some Kit Kats strapped to yeah. it or something um, <laughs> i remember that yeah but how how did you sort of find your way working on you know the channel and what's been happening since well like most like quite a lot of the people who, you, who you've had on on the podcast like i was there uh, i kind of devoured video game magazines when i was a kid and always wanted to you know write for a video game magazine that was always my dream and so uh I went to university, I studied uh, film and television at university, came out of that and was working in London in television and really not enjoying it. Um, and I kind of thought to myself, you know, why haven't I kind of made any kind of effort to actually go 
in the on the career path that I wanted to go on. Yeah. And uh, it was a time, uh, I remember it clearly, Final Fantasy thirteen had just come out and I'm a, a massive Final Fantasy fan. Um, but I wasn't too enthralled with Final Fantasy thirteen. There's and a surprise. My, yeah. <laughs> and my wife, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she kind of just suggested that I write a review of it because I'd always been, you know, I had like, shelves and shelves full of like back issues of official playstation magazine and psm3 all over our flat yeah it's like you know you clearly like this kind of stuff just just write a review and just send it in you know what's the worst what's the worst that they can say is just no so yeah okay so i wrote this review of uh, final fantasy 13 and i sent it i think i sent it into nathan at official playstation magazine and like to my amazement he replied I was like, yeah, this is this is pretty good actually. Would you like to come in for some work experience? And that was at the time they just started doing first play. And yeah. I think because I had like video editing work on my CV as well, um, that was kind of like an, an attractive thing. The fact that I could write and also do video editing. So I think that helped me get my work experience there. Um, but then I did, yeah, I did do the... Uh, because it was then quite a while before I heard from them again. I thought, man, maybe they've just forgotten about me. So I decided to do something that they couldn't ignore. And I'd had a conversation with uh, one of my colleagues. I was working at a, a TV channel called Wedding TV at the time. That was the Wedding TV. Oh, Wedding that TV. Sounds it's horrible. Just like, it was awful, like the ultimate car crash TV. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't exist now. Uh, not surprisingly. Um, but the, pe- <laughs> the people I worked with there were great. And there was this uh, guy called Robin. And he was just telling me this story about this uh, kid he knew who wanted to get his break in television and that he just sent a bunch of producers Kit Kats and with just a little note attached to them saying, give me a break. And I thought, that's a great idea. That is I'm a great gonna, idea. I'm going to just steal that idea, but put it on a magazine instead. And so I made, <laughs> like I wrote, I wrote a couple more reviews. I wrote a review for FIFA 10, I think, and for Uncharted 2. And I printed them out and made a little magazine out of them. And then on the front of it, did like a little cover mount and stuck a Kit Kat on it. And I thought, at the very least, they have to at least thank me for the Kit Kat. So they can't, they can't ignore this. So I sent those off to official PlayStation magazine and they find out, yeah, they're coming and do some work experience. So I did my work experience and that must have been, I think, uh, March 2010 or May 2010, around that kind of time. So over six years ago now and it was good it went really well and then after i did work experience i just badgered and badgered and badgered for uh like paid freelance work uh leon hurley who's now like the head of news at games radar he was commissioning editor on official playstation magazine at the time i remember emailing him just every week just got any work got any work got any work and eventually i think i annoyed him so much that it was just like fine have a review of this you know <laughs> little little 150 word review i think it was naughty bear it was like my first paid review uh, 150 words and it kind of kicked on from there i just kind of said yes to every job they gave me they gave me some transcribing work which was very unglamorous and i was up to like you know all hours in the morning up to like four or five in the morning just transcribing yeah. interviews you know it was tedious work but i thought you know i'm not going to say no to anything they offer me so i just kept on doing that and just made sure i was always on time always reliable and my freelance work became more and more and more and then they advertised for a staff writer position on an official PlayStation magazine. And this was, 
must have been the summer of 2011, around June time. So obviously I applied for that instantly and got an interview and I was really, really hopeful that I would get the job as I'd been uh, doing freelance with them for like a year. I thought I had quite a good chance. Yeah. Um, didn't get the job. Oh, but no. <laughs> amazingly, the access had just started around about that same time. And I just moved house from London. Like my, my fiance, my wife and I had just uh, left London and I moved down to Westbury, which is a little town near Bath where Future Publishing is based. And as I was unpacking boxes in my bedroom, I got a phone call from Nathan who had said, who said, uh, yeah, we're just starting up this thing called Access. Would you like a job on it? I was like, yes, please. So <laughs> that's kind of how it kicked. So I, in the end, I actually I applied for three different jobs at Future Publishing, didn't get any of them, didn't apply for Access and just got offered the Access job. So everything just kind of fell into place, really. It was a mixture of good timing and luck and yeah just being in the right place at the right time and that's, then yeah the rest is history that's quite a lovely story i, yeah. I very much enjoy the sort of i don't have a background in this but i'm going to give it a goddamn good yeah. try and, <laughs> yeah. and just get, and getting yourself you know almost crowbarring your way into people's minds and that is what them, i did yeah, I just we, annoyed them so much that it was easier for them to say, okay, have some freelance work. <laughs> <laughs> if it gets you out of my inbox, just have some work, yeah. So, but you actually in university studied like media production. And yeah, film so, and television, yeah. So you actually had a background in doing what they were looking for in Access, which I imagine very much helped. <laughs> yeah, that was that was kind of a stroke of luck, really. Because I was, I kind of picked film and TV just like as a whim. Like I'd done media at college. I did English, I did media and I did philosophy and didn't really know what I wanted to do at university. Yeah. And like m my mate at college, excuse me, he was, uh, he picked film. He went to London and did film at university. I thought, yeah, I'll just do film then. It's quite fun. Luckily, I now I, that gave me the skill of video editing, which combined with the fact that my writing was okay, kind of enabled me or made me more employable. It made Nathan think of me anyway when he was thinking, okay, I need someone who can write scripts for this show, but also it'd be really useful if they could edit videos too. Yeah. And that enabled me to get in there. So, yeah. So, am I right in thinking that you went to the same university that I did, which is Aberystwyth? Yeah, I did go to Aberystwyth. Yeah. Yeah. So you are my I second guest who went to Aberystwyth because Gav Was Murphy. Was your first one Gav Murphy? Yeah. Yeah. I, I found that out about Gav Murphy. He actually lived at 11 South Road, I think. I lived at 10 South Road and I never met him. Wow. <laughs> I never, I think he was there a year before me. Um, I might be getting this wrong, but I remember having a conversation with him about it and we discovered that we lived like ridiculously close to each other. <laughs> never met, never knew each other and then kind of. It's really funny yeah. you were talking about uh, Final it was when Final Fantasy 13 came out when you were sort of a writing starting you because I remember when I first ever thought about trying to write about like video game reviews was when I was at Aberystwyth which was exactly the time when Final Fantasy 13 came out and I was yeah. massively disappointed by it and there I wanted to something about that game <laughs> that provokes these kind of right this game is has annoyed me so much that i'm actually gonna try and channel this annoyance in some way and make something good come of it 
in a, in a way, I'm like really, really grateful to how bad Final Fantasy Thirteen was because I would not be here if I'd have enjoyed Final Fantasy Thirteen. I would not be working on Access. I think I can safely <laughs> say that. See, bad things happen when you start liking <laughs> Final Fantasy yeah. Thirteen. But obviously, now skip forward to 2016. Um, yes, you are now making content all the time for PlayStation Access, and you are very much one of. Obviously, you are this team that works extremely well together, and you are all great personalities. Um, and obviously, Nathan and Dave do a lot of work, and they do their um, the is it like feedback show? I, I forget. Yeah, um, access, but, access granted. Access granted. Show, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and um, you have your own Friday features videos as well, and I think you and Holly uh, feature a lot, uh, doing a lot of presenting and stuff like that. How did yeah. it sort of come about with you then presenting um, on the show, changing from writing to being one of the main presenters? Um, it actually it was a weird thing, actually. I remember you asked the same question to Nathan. He said it first happened when they opened the Harry Potter studio tour in Watford. Yeah. And I went, I went down there and did a few pieces to camera. Um, and that did happen. But the first time I was on camera or discovered that I quite liked being on cameras was when PlayStation Vita came out and we had to cover it but we weren't allowed to capture or we didn't have the capabilities of capturing gameplay directly from the PlayStation Vita so we're like oh shit how are we gonna how are we gonna show this <laughs> we're gonna have to film one of us playing the Vita I remember we did the a bunch of episodes and skits involving you know just typical puerile access humor where I was playing games on the toilet playing games in a stupid situation basically I I kind of realized that I enjoyed being in stupid situations and having people laugh at me so I, we'd film all these ridiculous situations where I had you know the Vita and this wasn't like talking lines or anything this was Lucy Porter was doing the, the voiceover for the show at the time so it was just literally cutaway video shots of a person playing a PlayStation Vita <laughs> and that person just happened to be me so I was like okay yeah I'll do it yeah I'll do this stupid little skit and it kind of evolved from there like I ended up doing some ridiculously embarrassing stuff. There was a, a time during Comic-Con at London when Lollipop Chainsaw was being announced, uh, being released, sorry, and they had uh, a dancing troupe from Pineapple Studios uh, dress up as zombie cheerleaders and do like a dancing thing. And as a PR stunt, they thought it'd be funny if I also dressed up as a zombie cheerleader. So I had, <laughs> so I had the cheerleader outfit on, zombie makeup, and I obviously thought this was really funny and then kind of didn't realise that I would be then cheerleading in front of, you know, hundreds of people at MCM Comic-Con. And the fact that I kind of felt embarrassed, even though I was in the middle of people dressed, you know, in extravagant video game cosplay and everything. And I was there with just a little tiny skirt and a little boob tube on, essentially, doing all this cheerleading stuff. But yeah, it's kind of evolved from that. Um, and then we had uh, Lucy Porter stop doing the Game of the Week sections that we did. And we took over that section ourselves. So we started presenting uh, Game of the Week to camera. And that was kind of the seed of the Friday features as they are now, in fact. Because we used to, we did Game of the Week, then that became like a video review and we kind of were in this weird middle ground where we were still kind of had this hangover from first play where it was where we had like editorial independence. But now we're making this thing that's an official 
marketing asset for Sony, essentially. So yeah. we're still kind of, okay, are we supposed to be doing reviews? I don't really know if we're supposed to be doing reviews, but we kind of liked doing these videos where we were presenting to camera because they were quite fun to make and they were funny. And that we kind of knew we couldn't do reviews like that. So they stopped. And then we kind of were at a stage when uh, the U- we started doing YouTube full time and we kind of sat down and were like, okay, how do we grow this channel? How do we, you know, pull in subscribers and really get, you know, a regular series of content going? And, you know, it's a bit of a no brainer to do list features. List features are easily digestible on YouTube. Um, but we thought we could combine doing a list feature with the kind of format that we were doing those video reviews in. So they wouldn't be reviews, they'd be like list featurey things. And I would present them because I quite enjoyed doing the the uh, game of the week and the silly on camera stuff. So that's how it started. And, and who, yeah, sort of evolved now into this. You sort of have a very nice regular schedule with PlayStation Access, which is not something YouTube channels do very often. It's weird. It's kind of like a TV channel almost when yeah. you know you know what you're sort of getting to watch each week, whereas other YouTube channels are sort of maybe a bit more sporadic and uh, create content whenever they want to. Obviously, you guys have a regularly scheduled broadcasting program um, with certain things. So specifically with Friday Features then, um, it does seem to be your baby a little bit. Um, is it actually like that? Is it mostly you thinking of the things and then the other guys are doing all the other stuff? Or is it sort of a collaborative effort with you taking the credit because you're the host? <laughs> um, it's sort of, it, it is my baby, but not like, I'm not, I, not delib- I'm not deliberately precious about it being like that. And it was never our intention for it to just be a thing that I sort of owned. Um I started presenting it because we just felt that was the natural fit for it at the time. Yeah. And it's kind of just uh, the way it's gone. Like I would just come up with a a title. I would write it. Then obviously I would present it and Dave Dave films me presenting it. And then I edit it as well. So it is basically is all I do on access at the moment. That is my job and has been my job for the last (laughs) two years. I think of a Friday feature, I write it, I film it, I edit it, and then I just go straight on to the next Friday feature. It's kind of just an endless cycle of doing Friday features. And we have thought about changing the format, but it's kind of become like a runaway beast. Like if ever I don't put a Friday feature live at 4 p.m. on a Friday, you can guarantee within like 20 minutes or so, I'll have had like 10, 20 tweets. Oh, absolutely. Where's, yeah. Here's a, a Friday feature today. And that's amazing. That's a really yeah. amazing thing I, to have that so many people are looking for it. But also, it, <laughs> I, I feel like this doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to the people who watch it I now. Do. Like I have an obligation to make it for them every week. And yeah. Sometimes I feel like I'm maybe running dry on ideas, but I've just got to keep doing it because it's <laughs> it's running away now. It's too, it, I can't stop the train. I do but, get that because recently with this show itself, there have been times when I've been maybe late and like I used to do it like dead on maybe 10 o'clock in the morning UK time because that was very easy for me in Japan but I've sort of changed it to the afternoon I remember the day the day I did that um I was like oh I'll leave it a little later I had like 20 people message me like where's the episode for this week are you not doing an episode this week and I was like uh no it's just coming later but I was just amazed that there were people waiting for it at a certain time of the week and that they sort of just expected it to be there which was 
in itself both crazy and very cool <laughs> to hear. Yeah, it's but, weird as well, isn't it? That you've got these formats now, all these meet like YouTube and you know, people listening to podcasts that you can consume this media anytime you want. But people have kind of still settled into their almost TV style routines of, OK, I know this is coming on this day at this time. Yeah. And I will, will sit down and deliberately watch it at those times. It's I strange. will. I will admit, um, although not as uh, very specific on the time, I will admit that I, there are a few people, a few content creators, especially on YouTube, who release stuff on a Friday, and um, I have like a list of things that I'll sit down on Saturday morning Japan time, which works out very easy when everything's been released. I'll mm. have time to sit on Saturday morning and watch them, and one of them is Friday Features. That's so, cool. I do. I have like I very much enjoy lot, it. Quite a lot of comments I'll get like, "Oh, I love you know getting home from work or school on a Friday, and I watch show of the week from outside Xbox. Then I watch Friday feature. Then I'll watch you know I think PewDiePie does a thing on a Friday as well, or we're used to at least. And it's yeah, you do get that. You're, you're a cog. Like a, you're it's a cog. Like a, yeah, it's like a comforting routine that people get into, and. Yeah, it, it, scheduling it that way has worked. <laughs> like you wouldn't think that having such a rigid schedule would work on YouTube, which you would think is should be flexible and you know not like a, a TV. Yeah, channel, more but... yeah, more sporadic and yeah. just able to do whatever you want at any time. Yeah, um, yeah, but a structure. People like structure, especially if they're doing. They have like their daily routines where they go to work and they only have maybe a Thursday night or a Friday night to be able to like either play games or watch stuff that is maybe not on TV and that kind of thing. So I guess it yeah. does help in a way that they know it's always going to be there. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to next week's Friday feature, which is eight PlayStation games you want to take to a deserted island because that'll be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good title, actually. I might have to steal it. <laughs> in association with <laughs> yeah in association with final games i mean it is a, it is a good title i'm i'm not joking i'm literally gonna do it now that's okay. because <laughs> trying to think of ideas for friday features is always such a oh man i've got to think of another catchy title this week you can that's have that one. you can have that one <laughs> for free it's funny actually the amount of ideas we've come up out between me and guests on this show um is is i should be taking some credit for some shit should be getting some commission <laughs> but we are here to talk about games that you like yes um, and you have chosen a very well-rounded list of some very very good games that have been released over the uh previous years and you said we were talking just before the show and you were saying that you've chosen games that mean a lot to you and that you have a very spe- they have a very special place in your heart um yeah for each choice, which is great. So we're gonna we're gonna hear some wonderful stories from you. So I think it's about time that we dive right into the first game, which is almost bringing it all the way back to the very beginning for most people. Um, and it is not a PlayStation game. No shock horror, Mister Mister Rob Pearson. You get to talk about games that are not sold on PlayStation titles this week. Yes, um, you are not bound by the limitations of PlayStation access. You can talk about. Whomever you may like on this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we should listen to some music from this first game and just dive straight into it. Mm-hmm. 
first game this week, when you sent yep. me the list, it just said Super Mario Bros. <laughs> yeah. It just said Super Mario Bros. And I was like, does he mean the original? Because that is really <laughs> going all the way back. Um, it is, isn't it? Yeah. So I, it is the first Super Mario Bros. And yes. I've actually been recently playing this game um, in the in the Super Mario Bros. collection. So the the like sort of revamped version they they released later for the Super Nintendo. And what a good game it still is to this day. So yes, it is Super Mario Bros. developed by Nintendo RD4 and directed by the obvious Shigeru Miyamoto. It released yep. in September it released in September of 1985 for the Nintendo Entertainment System and is just pretty much the biggest video game phenomenon of all time. Uh, yep. That goes without saying. So, Rob, please tell me when the first game you're taking with you today is Nintendo's Super Mario Bros. Well, I kind of shocked myself by putting this on the list because it's a game that I have not played for, I think I worked it out, I've not played it for 23 years. 23 and years. Wow. I, I never finished it. I never even got close to finishing it. Um, and I don't really know that much about it, but... In terms of me uh, getting into video games, as I'm sure for many people, it was just, it was the game. Like, my parents were, they never really liked the idea of me playing video games. It was quite late into my childhood that I actually owned my first console. And I would go around, like, uh, my dad's friend owned this, uh, it's like a cricket club type thing. It had a bar in it, it had an arcade machine. I would always kind of go, I was maybe about six or seven at the time, and I would go into this place and longingly just stare. It was just like a, a shmup with a ship that went along and it was shooting aliens and stuff. I can't remember what it was called, but I would go in there and I'd, I'd just stare longingly at it. I'm like, Dad, can I please, can I please have a go on this? Please, it's like 50, 50p a go or something. And he was always like, no, no, of course you're not playing that rubbish no 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 obviously <laughs> very much under the impression that video games were a bad influence even though he and, had it in his place of business yeah well it was his friend's place of business yeah oh but, okay, um, okay. it was just i just i knew i would it was a thing i would love to do i just every time i'd walk past an arcade or we would go to hollywood bowl for like a, a birthday party or something and i would just hang out in the arcade and there'd be like a time crisis would be there and I would never play them, but I would pick up the peripherals and just watch the rolling gameplay demo and sort of pretend I was playing them. Yeah. So I'd be there. I would always die at the same point, obviously, because it was just a, a pre-done video. But I would just kind of sit there shooting at the screen, just <laughs> longing, you know, something to change. And it never did. And I just, a matter of times, I would beg my parents, please, I would love, oh, for Christmas, please can I have like a... Please, can I have a Nintendo Entertainment System? Like all my friends have got, I'd really, really love one. And finally, my dad uh, relented and uh, he got this. I must have been six or seven at the time. So this would have been mid 90s. So it's already really, really old, nearly 10 years old. Yeah. And uh, he got this secondhand Nintendo Entertainment System. So the, it was the PlayStation was nearly out, but I didn't care. Like, I finally had this console. I was like, oh my God, I actually own a video game now. I actually own a console and I had Super Mario Bros. and I had Duck Hunt, which are the two games everyone I'm sure remembers. Like Duck Hunt was a great little game. Uh, but Super Mario Bros. Just, I remember playing it for the first time, not knowing anything 
about how video games worked or what I was supposed to be doing. Like, I, I don't think the instruction manual came with it. It was literally my dad got this second hand off some guy he knew. And it was just came in the box just without any manuals or anything. So I was just given this controller and it just had an A and a B on it and a little, some directional buttons. Like, what do I do? What do I do? And I think the amazing thing about Super Mario Bros, like playing it was almost like, learning a language it's a really kind of wanky thing to say but it was like <laughs> it was like learning video game as a language like now uh like to give you like a rubbish example like if you go down a flight of stairs in a video game you know to look under the stairs because there's probably some loot under the stairs like a thing that as a game as someone who's played games loads and loads and loads you know what how they work you know where yeah. designers will put stuff like I didn't like you. I was walking along with Mario. The first, the mushrooms, the Goombas, whatever they're called, they come along. I didn't know what to do. Like, I jumped over them, I avoided them, and then obviously I they touched me and I died. And then you would hit the glowing, uh, you'd hit the question mark, and the mushroom would come out. And I didn't know whether I was supposed to, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. So I remember a couple of times I like I jumped over that mushroom and didn't transform into Super Mario. And then I would finally, I finally found out that that was a good thing to get this mushroom, transform into Super Mario. And so the whole game for me was just a process of chipping away at, I don't know, it sounds wanky, but the language of video games and learning how to play video games. And I think that Miyamoto must have known that. He must have known that Super Mario Bros. was going to be the first game that loads of people played. And I think it's just the, how it was designed is just a, a perfect way of teaching people just the mechanics of a game. Like eventually I found out that, oh, I can jump on these things and that kills them if I'm Super Mario. And I, remember I watched like a YouTube clip of level one one the other day and there was a guy doing things in it that I didn't even know were in there. Like just like secret blocks just in midair, but not actually, you know, invisible <laughs> ones. I had no idea they were there. I didn't even think to look for them. Like, so uh, Super Mario Bros is on my list because if I was on a desert island, I would love to play it again now as someone who is fluent in video games and see how my experience of it differed. But I was just obsessed with this game. Like, I was awful at it. Like, I never got past. I remember getting into, as soon as I got to Bowser and the world number one for... And I beat Bowser after God knows how many attempts, like 20 attempts. And I kind of fluked it by running underneath him as he jumped. Um, and I thought that was it. I thought I'd finished the game. And then obviously, you know, <laughs> you have not it all, finished the game. <laughs> no, it all opens <laughs> up for you. <laughs> but like uh, my dad and my mum were separated. So I'd only get, I'd go to my dad's house every Sunday. So I had a week wait until I could play Super Mario again. Oh, no, you weren't allowed so to take would, it with you. No one allowed to take it with me, no, of course. So I would, in my mum's house, just be there, just pining for it, just, like, obsessing over it, like, I can't wait for Sunday so I can go and play Super Mario Bros. again. And he would only let me play it in the morning as well. So as soon as lunchtime came, it was like, OK, game's off. And I would just sit there in the afternoon, it's just like, oh. Go outside and play. Be a, <laughs> be a normal boy. <laughs> I just want to play Mario. But it just... Like, I don't know much about Mario. I've not really played another Mario game since. So it's been 23 years since I've played this. But if it wasn't for Mario, like that game really kind of sparked an obsession in me. And I knew, man, video games are amazing. I, really, I have to, you know, that's play really, more of these. That's really incredible to hear. Like, obviously, Super Mario sort of sparked your interest in video games uh, a, lo a lot and sort of 
helped you onto the path of understanding the language of video games. Yeah. Um, but you sort of abandoned him by the wayside and went in a different direction. Not, um, not, not um, intentionally. Not intentionally, but I no. imagine it's... And I, I don't want to take away from this game so much, but the next game we're going to talk about, I think, will be a big insight into the sort of where you went next. Yeah. Um, but what... what? <laughs> obviously, you say you didn't do it on purpose, but was it just not appealing after games you'd played later to go back and play Mario? Like, especially with games like, you know, Mario Galaxy that came out in, like, 2007, which, you know, is only a 10-year gap between basically when you started playing video games mm. to to that game being released, um, which in video games, 10 years is a long time, obviously, but yeah. um, was it just availability or maybe just preoccupied with other games? It was just the very simple fact that uh, after having the Nintendo, the NES, um, so I must have been for my 11th or 12th birthday, my birthday's on Christmas Day, so every Christmas, like, you know, I have, I ask for, like, you know, my, my Christmas list is also my birthday list. So I'd be like, okay. <laughs> I remember asking my dad specifically, and uh, this is going to be very controversial now, I asked him for an N64, uh, obviously because I'd had the NES and I knew Mario, and I knew there were Mario games on the N64 because all my friends had it and were raving about it. Yeah. Um, and instead he bought me the PlayStation. Ooh. So, like, my it wasn't a it wasn't a decision that I made to abandon Mario and go in a different direction. Um, it's your dad's cock as, up. As a, yeah, as a kid, like <laughs> you, you play the games your parents buy for you because oh, I don't yeah. have any spending power no, as a kid. I got you don't get so, many. You don't no. get many. And they're a treat. And like, but I don't. Obviously, I don't regret that he bought me a PlayStation because if he hadn't bought me a PlayStation, then. God knows where I'd be now, and God knows what this list would consist of. And my favourite games that are now I now really cherish, I may not have even played them because they weren't on the N sixty four. So no. there may be there would have been no Metal Gear tally in the Friday features. <laughs> if I, I obviously wouldn't even be working on PlayStation Access because. But yeah. Oh well, and we're gonna probably touch a little more on that. Uh, in the next two games so i think we should move we should definitely move on to the next game because i feel like this that's going to be the big the big one the yep. big one so let's listen to some music from this next game you'll all recognize it and let's dive straight into it to the next game we have to talk about the deserted island 
the deserted oh, place yes. in which you are going to be. Um, we can't send you off to nowhere. Um, no. We have to send you off to a nice, wonderful place in video games that we allow you to think of. Um, yeah. So you can have some home comforts in a recognizable sense. Um, so I know you've been listening to the show a little bit recently. Have you thought yep. a little bit about the deserted island choice of where you would like I to have. be trapped? Oh, very good. I have. I've come prepared uh, for this. Um, I, have, I have two answers. Um, for some reason, I have a weird obsession with um, houses in video games and levels where you can just walk around a house. And there are a couple of examples that really stuck with me. And one is in heavy rain, Madison's apartment. Okay. You don't, get to, you don't get to spend much time there, but you get to walk around it in this level. And I kind of love just walking around it, exploring. It's a really nice open plan apartment high up in this uh, high rise of apartments. It's dark outside and it's raining. And I just remember thinking, man, I would love to be in this apartment and just rest my head on this window, <laughs> look out at the city below, listen to the rain and listen. think about nothing. I could just stand there for hours, you know, thinking about nothing. That would be great. And my other one was um, spoilers for Uncharted 4 ending, by the way. I, I knew this was coming. As soon as you said houses, this was yeah. exactly the one that sprang into mind. So, yes. So, uh, Spoilers for Uncharted 4 ending if you have yep. not finished it yet. Yeah. Um, so basically, at the end of Uncharted 4, the epilogue sees you um, walking around Nathan Drake and Elena's house. And it's an amazing house just on a beach. And it's like the most perfect paradise beach ever. And this house is just great. It's, it's exactly like you would imagine Nathan Drake's house to be, full of old items and things from his career, treasure hunting, and it's all kind of rustic and just the steps go out onto a porch which just leads out onto the beach and there's beautiful turquoise water. And It is man, gorgeous. Be, it is be gorgeous. And Naughty Dog, I think, they have nailed the, uh, the child walking around a really nice house genre. Because yeah. at the, be the beginning of The Last of Us, obviously, you play as uh, Joel's daughter, Sarah, walking around their house. Yeah. That's a really nice house as well. It's just something really calming and therapeutic about walking around those environments and looking at what Naughty Dog have put into them. Because they put so much amazing detail into them. And then that, and that, and the house at the end of Uncharted 4 was just amazing. And I remember thinking, man, this, if I could just dream up a house I would love to live in, this would be the one. So... I think Char I'll go for that one. Uncharted 4 is a great example of this. If you think, like, you can walk around in Drake's, like, office, apart, like, office, um, what was it called? Uh, attic. Mm. You, you can walk around there, and that's incredibly detailed, obviously, with lots of uh, nice fan service calls to previous games. Um, yeah. And then there's the, when he's younger, you can walk, you can go, you sneak into that house, and you walk around that big mansion, and that is very detailed as well, with all incredible yeah. artifacts. And then obviously at the end of the game, you can walk around uh, as his daughter in this beach house as yeah. well. Naughty Dog have really nailed that, haven't they? I mean, I love those kind of levels in Uncharted as well, because sometimes I find, you know, I'm not I'm not very good at uh, shooters and action games like that. You know, it takes me a few goes to get through them and I get, end up getting frustrated. So when they give you a level that's just 
okay, let's take the pace down. Yeah. Let's put you in a nice environment. You can just walk around and explore it. I, w- I, l- I love that stuff. Like, I wish more games would have, you know, non-combat areas where you can just at your leisure. Breathers. Just, yeah, exactly. Just stroll around them and just have a nice, relaxed, leisurely time and continue with see, the killing when you're ready. I see. I don't know why it's become taboo for cutscenes, like long cutscenes, to be a problem in video games. We've seen a lot of this sort of pulled away now. Like a lot of cutscenes or story exposition comes during gameplay. Obviously, we yeah. were able to create set pieces. But, you know, games like Metal Gear Solid 4 got knocked for having incredibly long cutscenes. I actually am a believer in, you know, the cutscenes being a breather, especially in action games, between each segment. And, I, you know, they're an enjoyable thing to watch while you sort of reset yourself, ready for the next challenge in the video game. Um, and they not, weren't just a, a like a breather, sorry to interrupt. They were, they yeah. were like a reward, if anything. Yeah, I remember no, playing I agree. A, I remember it was Tomb Raider, The Last Revelation, and... You know, those games were hard, especially when I was a kid, like the puzzle aspects in them and working out where you had to go. And so when you actually got to the end of a level and you got a CG cutscene, it was almost like a, a trophy. Like, yes, you've completed the level. Now oh, I agree. This lovely, beautiful movie. <laughs> and yeah. like, yeah, it's kind of I mean, I love the way that it's gone now, the way that we can have story exposition within the game. And sometimes you have games where you don't have like traditional exposition like that. And video games can tell stories in really new and interesting ways now through their yeah. environment, which I love. Um, but yeah, I, uh, the cutscenes, especially with the game we're about to talk about, like for me, were a reward for having completed a certain task. <laughs> you would get to watch a cool movie. Yeah. So just before we move on to this game then, if you had to choose between the heavy rain apartment and the beach house at the end of Uncharted 4, what would you choose? Oh, it depends what kind of mood I'm in. If I'm in like a nice melancholy mood, then I'd go for the, the city apartment. But uh, as an environment to play games in, I think I'll have to go for the Uncharted 4 beach house because it is just paradise. It, it very much paradise island. It very much fits in with the whole idea of a desert island for this yeah, show exactly. as well. Yeah. So for the rest of the show, if you are listening now and you're worried about spoilers, it just it's not a huge spoiler, but we'll just refer to it as the the beach house. <laughs> we yeah, won't say too much house. about it. Um, yeah, so we should talk about this next game then. And yeah. I think for anyone who has watched Friday Features, and you've already hinted at, you are a massive fan of the JRPG series Final Fantasy. Yes. And this next game is a game you've spoken a, a lot about, and especially yeah. about how you love it. Um, it's a game that released in January of 1997 for the PlayStation, developed by Square and released worldwide by Sony Computer Entertainment. Produced by the one and only Hironobi Sakaguchi, it is Final Fantasy VII. Rob, please tell me why Final Fantasy VII is the second game you're taking with you. Um. I have to put it in there because it is my all-time favorite game. And when everyone, when any, well, sorry, whenever anyone asks me what my favorite game is, I don't have to. It's not a thing I have to say. Oh, let me think. It's always Final Fantasy VII. Um, <laughs> on this on this list, it kind of represents the Final Fantasy series as a whole, because especially Final Fantasy VII, um, it was the game that made me realize just how amazing video games could be, I think. Because before then, like, I got my PlayStation for Christmas, as I, as I said before, and I, was about, I think I was about 12. Um, 
I had Crash Bandicoot Warped, you know, an amazing game, but kind of just like a, you know, it's the same, it's a platformer, it's like Mario, an evolved form of Mario, uh, you know, classic platforming, jumping on enemies to kill them, collecting fruit, smashing boxes kind of thing. Yeah. And I remember is my friend at school, actually, Darren, who introduced me to Final Fantasy and said, oh, you've got to play these games. I had no idea this genre of game even existed. And at the time, I was, uh, I, I, you know, I was always into reading, and I loved reading uh, fantasy novels and things. So I was really into uh, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, as I'm sure all nerdy kids were. Um, like uh, Redwall was a series of books by Brian Jakes, Brian Jacks, I don't know how you pronounce his surname, which I absolutely loved as well, and I love those kind of stories. And when I played Final Fantasy VII for the first time, I got the same type of feeling that I did when I was read when I just got I loved getting lost in these worlds and escaping into them and I didn't think it was possible for games to allow you to do that like books did yeah and Final Fantasy 7 was a game that just made me think wow this is amazing this I am I cared more about the characters in Final Fantasy 7 than I've ever cared about any characters in any book or film or game ever and i think i was the perfect age as well i was like 13 14 when i first played it so that kind of you know just figuring out myself going through all the you know tumultuous emotions and whatnot of being a teenager and i think i was the perfect age to be really caught up and swept up by this amazing story um and that's what it was for me it wasn't a battle system it wasn't the so much you know, the mechanics of it, which I, you know, do still really enjoyed. It was the story. And I've never been since swept up with a video game story as much as I was swept up in that. And it's such a brilliantly, perfectly paced and plotted story. The way the the way it reveals itself, the way the twists happen, uh, just the whole, the build up of it. The fact that you're just hunting this one guy down, Sephiroth, who's like this unbelievably powerful, godlike enemy and you're in awe of him the entire time and just the sense of adventure in that game the size of it when you leave Midgar and you see the size of the world and it hits you and you're like man this is this is huge this is like lots of people always uh, like to compare video games to movies and say how movie like they are but I think Final Fantasy it's like playing a really really good fantasy novel that's what it felt like to me it felt like all those novels I love to read but I was playing it and I was in like it. almost it like, like one of the interactive like the what were the the fantasy books you could get where you turned the pages to certain things for different outcomes yeah. like an interactive version of a fantasy book almost yeah but with obviously really cool CG movies amazing <laughs> I can summon a dragon I can summon Bahamut and have him laser a bunch of people and the limit breaks <laughs> the characters were amazing so well written the translation job is so good in Final Fantasy VII. I mean, there there are bits of it where it's a bit wonky compared to some of the, like, uh, you know, compared to a Nino Kuni, which I think is the most impeccably translated JRPG ever. Yeah. Um, but Final Fantasy VII, it's brilliantly written. It's so warm, and you really do feel like you're a part of that gang of ragtag adventurers as they hunt this madman throughout this amazingly varied, beautiful world. And that, just everything about it. It's just a magic, magic game. And I think 
playing it at the time I played it really just uh, everything just fitted into place with that game for me. I played it at the perfect time and yeah, it was just I'd played nothing else like it before. It was amazing. It is one of those things, it's weird. Final Fantasy VII, it fits in both categories as being one of the most impressive games of all time and just one of the standout of a whole generation. And, you know, in most recent times, especially as Final Fantasy has progressed, um, sort of has become a cliche answer to a lot of questions for some people, like, oh, what's your favorite Final Fantasy? Oh, Final Fantasy VII. Oh, what's your favorite Mm. game? Oh, Final Fantasy VII. Um, What do you sort of think of people who think that... in Final Fantasy VII, and even when I think back to it, it's not my favorite Final Fantasy. Um, but when I think back to it, and I recently watched like a video breakdown series of the story, the story is, I think for the time, just on another level. The amount yeah. of, um, you know, Cloud dealing with, you know, pers- uh, personality disorder and his problems with, you know, having been experimented on and thinking he's a different person and all these different things are happening. They're just like so many thematic elements that just hadn't, obviously video games were never able to tell such a story before, but then Final Fantasy just coming out of nowhere and t- using these almost alien um, themes to tell a video game story is incredibly impressive. Yeah, it was totally was, and that was it. That is the story, and like I said, the the involvement I felt with those characters, and being ident being able to identify with Cloud, and you know, his struggle to come to terms with you know who he is and what he is. Man, yeah, nothing else had been like it before that. And I know final. One of the things I love about Final Fantasy is how everyone has their favorite final fantasy and very rarely will you meet someone who has the same favorites as you like holly on the channel loves final fantasy 8 that's her favorite final fantasy uh, i know people who final fantasy 9 is their favorite final fantasy final fantasy 9 is very close to me to final fantasy 7 like you know if i had to pick a second i'd pick final fantasy 9 yeah uh, those three those three the yeah. first 3d titles the first three that especially people of our sort of age or generation generational group um mm. very much oh what's your favorite is it seven eight or nine and then some yeah. people are say 10 they count 10 in that bracket as well yeah um which is very understandable but yeah it's definitely <laughs> is it between seven or or nine which is your favorite <laughs> out of those three yeah. I, it comes down to a lot um, so Final Fantasy VII has been released on an incredible amount of platforms now, mm. multiple, multiple platforms. How many times have you finished the game and on how many different platforms? I've only ever finished it on PlayStation 1. Okay. But I did, I did finish it at least five times. It was in an age where, as again, like uh, I wasn't able, I didn't have the spending power to just buy whatever games I wanted. So I maybe had like three or four games. And if I wanted a new game before it was Christmas, I just had to trade in an old game. So I had I had Final Fantasy seven, VII, eight, and nine, and I would just play them on rotation. And I had a, a bunch of others as well. Um, but seven, VII, eight, and nine, I completed all of those about four or five times. Uh, seven did absolutely everything in it: beat Emerald Weapon, beat Ruby Weapon, got my gold Chocobo. Just absolutely rinsed that game. Um, I've started playing it again on PS4, the PS4 port. Um, but obviously, I've got you know, I've got a lot to fit in as an adult <laughs> man. Far more worries than I had. 
and responsibilities. So I've left Midgar on PS4. I'm really hoping I can I can complete it again because I really want to do experience it again and, and see if it still provokes the same response in me that it did all those years ago. Um, but yeah, I will I will complete it on PS4. But Which... so far I have. Out of the two versions then that you've played, the PlayStation 1 and the PlayStation 4, which version would you be taking with you to the deserted place? Oh. Like... If it's, the, if it's in... T- Sorry, go on. It, it is the PlayStation 1, like, the very pure version of the game for you? or Because the PlayStation 4 version introduced loads of new elements, didn't it, where you could... Uh, I think you could like fast forward things and you could all, you could sort of mod it a little bit with the, it had some pretty crazy settings. I've not played it myself, but I think that's what I've read. Yeah, um, you can, you can speed up the time. Um, so yeah. if you're just going through an area that, and you can also turn off random battles. So if you want to get through an area that, you know, really quickly without having to get any random battles, you can just yeah. speed through it. Um, I'm not particularly precious about like the PlayStation one version in thinking, Oh, it's like this pure thing. Like it's still the same game. It's just like a, an updated, ported version of it. Um, like I would, I guess for nostalgia's sake, I would take the PlayStation One version. But like in terms of practicality, just not having to change physical discs and having the whole thing just in one nice, easy thumbnail <laughs> on my PS4's dashboard. <laughs> yeah. Practicality in terms of practicality, yeah, maybe the PS4 version. But I'm not particularly uh, precious about like you know. A specific that's, version of it. That's fair enough. That's a, that's fair enough. So I think before we move on from Final Fantasy, then we should maybe touch on a little bit about the remake that is happening. Um, mm. Obviously, we've not heard too much information, and Square Enix are very much focused on you know the Final Fantasy 15 stuff they're doing, uh, and Final Fantasy 14 is doing extremely well. So I imagine once 15 comes out this year, and hopefully this year, um, yeah. <laughs> We'll see more information about what's next in terms of Final Fantasy VII, um, the remake, and it's going to be episodic. How are you feeling overall about the remake? Are you excited, apprehensive, or maybe they didn't need to do it? Or I am. I'm excited about it. Obviously, um, it looks fantastic. Obviously, when they first showed it at E3, being in that, I was at E3. I was at that conference and the noise that came out of that crowd <laughs> when that was in cuz they just before it they'd showed a world of final fantasy and everyone was politely applauding oh this looks nice another little final fantasy spin off huh? and then adam boy stepped up and was like uh and now we have a special treat for everyone and everyone this is you could just feel this ripple go through the room like are you are you are you fucking serious are you actually about are you no you're just teasing us with this you're surely teasing us. And then this trailer came on and everyone was like, it's a movie, no, it's a movie, it's a movie. And then just the word remake came on the screen. It was like being at a football match or something. Ridiculous. <laughs> just the, it's like uh, the last minute winner in the Champions League final. It's just like an eruption of noise. It was amazing to be there and uh, to be swept up in that excitement. But yeah, I am excited about it. I don't think, you know, it, I kind of feel a bit, you know, sad at the kind of reaction it gets when some people are like, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna, oh, if they get this wrong, it'll ruin my childhood. No, it won't. Like the original Final Fantasy VII is still there. Still yeah, exists. that's that's not gonna disappear. Just <laughs> yeah, its existence just, isn't just gonna go from history and not be a thing anymore. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. Like everyone has been asking for this for years and years and years and years, and now they've Square Enix are making it, and I think we should be 
grateful that they're making it and I'm just going to reserve judgment. I am quietly optimistic that it's going to be amazing. Um, I can't wait to see what changes they do, how they're going to modernize the combat system. I'm really excited about that. Um, and do you, do you epic. reckon, do you reckon it's going to have, because the video certainly looked like it was going to have a 15 style combat. Mm. Almost. I think so. I think that's what they were. That's the impression I get anyway, that they're going for a real time, uh, a real time combat system, which I think is a good thing. Like, uh, you have to kind of bring it forward and I like Final Fantasy XV's combat from what I've played of it. I played the episode Duske demo and it's really it's good fun. Um so I'm all up for them doing changing things and, and modernizing the game and yeah, I think we should all reserve judgment until it arrives. Yeah. Um but I am quietly optimistic and uh, the 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 thirteen year old boy inside me is leaping with excitement about it as well. Obviously, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's probably a way off yet as well. Uh, they yeah, still got I, Kingdom Hearts three. They've got to bring out Kingdom Hearts three first. I surely. I think I I think that we'll probably see the remake before we see Kingdom Hearts three. I think. Yes. I think we know more about the remake than we actually do about kingdom hearts 3 we've seen like two videos of kingdom hearts 3 where we've seen almost we've seen two videos of the remake and we know it's going to be episodic and we sort of know what their plans are so i think we might see that Mm. first um but yeah it's definitely square how much longer i can wait for kingdom hearts 3 i've been waiting for kingdom hearts 3 nearly 10 years (laughs) (laughs) well i think we're going to move on now to the next game which I'm torn between what is going to be potentially even more influential for you than the game we've just spoken about. Um, yep. It features in your Friday features a lot as a very, very funny <laughs> yes. in-joke about the tally. So we're going to listen to some music from this next game and then we're going to talk about it. Okay, Rob, so now we have got Final Fantasy out of the way. We've got Final Fantasy out of the way. I think people who watch your videos knew Final Fantasy was going to come. So I think they were going to expect the next game we're going to talk about as well very much. (laughs) Um, It's Kojima's game. It's it's the PlayStation 1 game, of course. It released in Japan in September of 1998, and it released a little later in North America and almost six months later in Europe. It's the Konami Computer Entertainment developed game, Metal Gear Solid. Rob, 
you're a huge fan of Metal Gear Solid. Please tell me why the first game, Metal Gear, well, the first solid game, Metal Gear Solid, is the game you're taking with you. Oh, it's uh, it was a really hard toss-up between the original Metal Gear Solid and uh, Metal Gear Solid 3. But I went with Metal Gear Solid, the original, because it, and I mentioned earlier, my dad's kind of, not disdain for video games, but his kind of distant disapproval of them as a, a viable entertainment medium and you know, he kind of dismissed them as a waste of time. But Metal Gear Solid, um, I had that, again, my dad bought me my PlayStation, so again, it was like I had to wait a week every time I wanted to play the PlayStation. Um, and I had Metal Gear, he bought me Metal Gear Solid because I'd you know read about, I think I'd read... I was devouring official PlayStation magazine at the time. They just released uh, issue 42, which I think to this day is the highest selling uh, video game magazine in the in history in the UK. I think it sold something ridiculous. I think it outsold FHM for that month. It was the month Metal Gear Solid was, it re- was reviewed in it. And it was like the most glowing 10 out of 10 review you will ever read. I was like, holy shit, this game looks amazing. And of course, they had the demo discs on it. So I got the Metal Gear Solid uh, demo. And I was like, oh, man, this is like, I can't actually remember to my shame whether I played Metal Gear Solid or Final Fantasy VII first. Okay. But either way, either way, I think, I think I might have played Metal Gear Solid first, even though Final Fantasy VII was released before, um, just because, you know, it was my, my friend Darren introduced me to Final Fantasy. But either way, I, I knew about Metal Gear Solid and thought, man, this is a game I have to play. And instantly was like, you know, hugely hooked on it in terms of how it presented its story. Because I said Final Fantasy VII was like a novel. Metal Gear Solid was very much like a movie. But the most amazing thing about it was how it changed my dad's perception of video games as well. Because he would, you know, just, okay, play on the PlayStation. He'd go off and do whatever he was going to do for a couple of hours. Um, He came in and glanced at me playing Metal Gear Solid and then as the weeks went by, he would stay there for a little bit longer and a little bit longer <laughs> and a little bit longer until it got to the stage where I would get to my dad's house and he would have the PlayStation on ready with Metal Gear Solid in the disc. And he'd be like, okay, come on, <laughs> let's play some Metal Gear Solid. And it took me... Combat took rolls, me... combat <laughs> rolls out here. He's like, dun, 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 dun. It was amazing. It took me ages to finish it because I would play it for maybe uh, one hour um he'd still keep would he yeah, still, still keep you to that regular still schedule be on, 12 o'clock still on <laughs> yeah yeah still on the strict timetable but he was he was very much into it and i was still at a stage i was you know bad at it it took me ages to beat revolver Ocelot. i remember i think about two or three weeks worth of going to my dad's and trying to beat revolver Ocelot. um so yeah it took me a good two three months of sundays to complete Metal Gear Solid. Um, but by the end of it, my dad was just so enthralled with it. And I remember hearing the words come out of his mouth, like, this is like a film. This is like a James Bond film. This is amazing. And <laughs> just really into the story. And there's the bit at the end where you have to, you get the card key and you have to freeze it and heat it up and change its shape. And you activate the the PAL codes. And the twist is, oh, actually, you've activated Metal Gear Rex rather than deactivated Metal Gear Rex. I remember, I remember to this day my dad's reaction 
just kind of, oh, no way. And then Miller takes off his sunglasses and, oh, my God, it's liquid, it's actually liquid snake. And, like, I never really had, like, a... I didn't have like a, 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 a traumatic or awful relationship with my dad by any stretch of the imagination, but we were never you know, particularly close. We didn't really share very many interests. I, yeah. I like football. He doesn't like football, so we didn't really play football together or anything. And this was the first thing that we'd really been able to enjoy together. And it was just a really cool bonding experience. Obviously, the game is an amazing game in terms of its plot and its twists and just the fact that it was stealth, the fact that you had to evade enemies, that was the whole objective of it, was to sneak past enemies and evade encounters rather than actively seek them out and, and kill enemies, which is what most games are about and, yeah. and still are about. Um, so that was an, an amazing, fresh thing to do. Uh, but just the fact that it got my dad so into it. And if, it, if a game can change my dad's perception on video games i think that's a, a huge achievement and then obviously there's the things that it did in terms of uh, fourth wall breaking ridiculousness like i remember being stuck for ages when uh, uh kenneth baker tells you to phone merrill and he says that the numbers on the back of the cd case yeah oh you have to God, actually just... look at the goddamn fucking cd yeah, case exactly yeah it's like it's like mario all over again like i thought i'd learned video game language and just did not even occur to me. The thought didn't even pop into my head. Does he mean the actual CD case? And I remember my dad was like, go back to that room where the computer the computers were. There'll be like a CD on the desk there. I was like, I've Which been there is... like five times already, Dad. <laughs> and I was like, and I had like, I was looking through the items in my inventory, <laughs> trying, and I was trying to convince myself that uh, like a, the PAL card key was somehow, maybe that's a CD box or something. Is that a C, is, the, is the card key in a CD case? Can I look at this item somehow? Is there another way I can get into the inventory? And of course, there was no like internet that I had at that time, so I couldn't like look it up or anything. And I was just stumped for ages. And it got to the time where <laughs> it was like two or three o'clock in the afternoon, so I was on my not allowed to be playing games time. And I was just doing what I usually did, which was sitting up in my bedroom, reading the manual, just kind of obsessing over it. Just, you know, looking at the box, just reading the manual, looking at the back of the box, looking at the screenshots, looking at the screenshots. Oh, there's Snake talking to Meryl. Oh, there's Meryl's number. How do I find Meryl's number then? If there it... And I was like, oh, fuck. There it is. There, there it is. Do they mean this CD box? And I was like, that is... That is I couldn't believe that that's what they'd done. I just could not... It absolutely blew my mind that that is what they'd done. And I kind of ran downstairs and showed it to my dad. I was like, look! There it is. That's what they mean by the back of the CD box. And he was like, oh. So, yeah. I chose Metal Gear Solid 1. Like, it's really hard to choose between 1 and 3 for me in terms of quality. But the kind of, the happy memories I have with Metal Gear Solid 1 kind of tip it into being included on this list ahead of 3 for me. Yeah. It's weird because I got into Metal Gear Solid around Metal Gear Solid 3. I never actually... <clears throat> sort of played Metal Gear Solid 1 and Metal Gear Solid 2 because I missed the play... I sort of missed the PlayStation era and came into the PlayStation 2 more than I did the PlayStation, like friends had PlayStation. So I never really experienced Metal Gear the first time around until mm. a little later. And even then, still some of the Kojima's little tricks, that being sort of early 2003, 2004, there still wasn't a massive amount of like internet information. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I remember just 
the Merrill CD case thing. And a friend knew, the friend I was playing with knew, obviously. He had experienced mm. that a long time ago. He knew what to do. And he, I was, I spent ages, I was like, what the fuck do you do? Like, where, what, am I, <laughs> what am I fucking doing? Like, just tell me. And he's like, no, think, think outside the box. Come on, like, you can do it. Just think, <laughs> think. Think outside the box. Oh, I, I, I didn't get it. He had to tell me because he was getting frustrated at the fact that I just kept going back and forth between rooms to try and look for stuff. But that's the thing, though, isn't it? You're just, you're not, your brain is not trained to think that that could be a solution. Like, you learn how to play video games. You learn how they work. You learn what they do and what they don't do. And that is a thing they don't do. And they and don't do that now, either. It's because like, Kojima knows that. And he knows yeah. that. He knows that to a T. So he's like, yeah, yeah. well, we're going to just... We can just change it up a little bit. <laughs> He's a genius. He is uh, a genius. So as the uh, as Final Fantasy has progressed as well, Metal Gear Two has progressed, and yes. um, both are in very different points. I would say both are sort of troubled in their own way, and um, mm. but there there is some like a glimmering hope with Final Fantasy. Uh, whereas Metal Gear on the other side, we've seen the most recent Metal Gear survive announcement yeah. and um obviously Metal Gear Solid 5 was an incredible piece of gaming like history it was a huge fantastic uh, game how have mm. you sort of how have you sort of enjoyed the series are you still enjoying it as much as you have done is Metal Gear Solid how was Metal Gear Solid 5 to you Metal Gear Solid 5 was like if it, it felt very different to uh to all the Metal Gears before for me and the thing I like about these games is always, for me, the story is always the thing I get massively into, like more than anything. Yeah. And Metal Gear Solid 1 was riveting. Metal Gear Solid 2, I know loads of people uh, deride it and say, and I guess they're probably right. It is a bit, there are elements of it that are, you know, odd design choices is this weird commentary on the nature of sequels and kind of it's it's kind of a, a knowing like you said you you said you wanted this again so i've made it again what are you complaining about um but the plot was ridiculous and i remember kind of you know the five or six twist endings when the colonel campbell turns out to be an ai construct of the patriots and i was like 14 or 15 when i played this and i was just <laughs> lapping it up i was like this is great this is amazing and i guess the, time, the kind of the time when when the matrix reloaded was my favorite movie ever that's the kind of <laughs> yeah that's the, the kind sort of, of uh, conspiracy technology yeah. <laughs> Oh my it's God, nano machines <laughs> and there's it just looked to me i still i couldn't get over how good metal gear solid 2 looked and the hd remaster still looks good now still looks great yeah absolutely it still looks good and obviously there are things in metal gear solid 2 that are you know odd design choices but i love it anyway and metal gear solid 3 is you can't argue about that being a masterpiece it's just an absolute masterpiece of a game it's it, it just took the size of the game because Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2 you could finish in like 5 hours Metal Gear Solid 3 was a good 20 hour game yes and it, was it was huge big sprawling adventure and you the journey you go on that get on in that game is is amazing you look at uh Naked Snake at the beginning and you look at Big Boss at the end just the physical and the emotional change in that character and you like take every blow of that with him it's an amazing journey that game metal gear solid 4 was just like a big fan service wrap-up of 
all of the plot ends and bits of it were ridiculous but i still really enjoyed it obviously because i'm a massive sucker for metal gear metal gear 5 i think technically is probably the best metal gear game in terms of story like it didn't have the kind of it didn't have the there were some ridiculous bits in it like i really loved the bit where uh quiet is in your fighter jet and she kind of or she's in your helicopter, sorry, and you're being attacked by that fighter jet and she kind of snipes the pilot right in the forehead and the jet kind of goes right underneath the helicopter and crashes into the... That's the kind of Hideo Kojima <laughs> cutscene I love. But for me, they're like, you know... This is what I've wanted! <laughs> kind of yeah. Feeling. yeah. I, want, I want you to do a rubbish Metal Gear Solid 2 again, Hideo Kojima. Please do a rubbish Metal Gear Solid 2 again. <laughs> but I, it's an amazing game. It's just a, a big toy box, isn't it? An amazing toy box of what do you think you can do you probably can do it. If you can think it up, you can probably do it. And it's an amazing technical showpiece. Um, I probably rate it as my, if I had to rank the series, probably third favorite. I go one, three, five, four, two. Um, okay. But yeah, in terms of its ridiculous Kojima moments, I don't think it was quite up there with uh, Metal Gear Solid's one to four, but that's not, you know, this is my, this is me as a ridiculous Kojima file. Like, yeah. I love anything he does. I will unapologetically love it. Like, Death Stranding is probably going to be a load of weird nonsense. I will love it, whatever it is, because <laughs> Kojima is a genius. And it, it certainly felt like he was uh, toning it down slightly with Metal Gear Solid Five. It is undoubtedly a, a tremendous, amazing game. But the, uh, just for me personally, that that little... The little odd, quirky weirdness just wasn't there as much as it was in the previous games. It, it definitely was a bit more based in reality. It was a bit yeah. more gritty. It, it was there. You could see I mean, it's that still, he, it's still weird, isn't it? There's it was still, still it, it was weird to the sense that it was still a Japanese Kojima game, but yeah. it very much had a lot of influence from maybe you know the recent introduction of huge Western budget, um, like gritty titles like the last of us and mm. um you know the you know battlefield and all those types of games there was a, it was definitely a bit more based in a little bit of reality yeah. um compared to the others but yes so i think we should move on from metal gear now because we could talk yep. metal gear all day and yep. this is now we're moving into another game that i could probably talk about all day as well and i'm very yeah. interested to hear about when you started playing this series um because the way you started playing video games and where you got into it was very different from most people and very interesting. So you, you sort of bounced around a lot. So I'm very interested to know when you started playing in this next game. So let's listen to some excellent music from this next series and let's talk about it.
to the next game on your list, Rob. We're sort of going back to Nintendo now, and we're going yep. to the handhelds. And you have chosen this next game, which was developed by Game Freak and produced by Shigeru Miyamoto, who's a part of the team, but also directed by the very famous Satoshi Tajiri. And it's part of the phenomenon that was Pokemon. And it's yeah. the enhanced version of the first releases in the West, mm. Red and Blue. It's Pokemon Yellow. So, yeah. Rob, you've chosen Pokemon Yellow, but why? And when did when did you come to the series? Because I'm not sure, when did you get a Game Boy? Or was it like a friend's Game Boy or something? I'm... It was a friend's Game Boy, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, was, okay. Uh, I had a period in um, secondary school where I was ill. I was off school for about three weeks. And my friend Darren, the one who introduced me to Final Fantasy, oh, man, I owe a lot of my gaming taste of this to Darren. I should maybe phone him up and say thank you. Um, but uh, he took pity on me and lent me his uh, Game Boy Color. I think, yeah, Game Boy Color. And it had Pokemon in it. And I think it was at the time when Pokemon was just igniting and it was everywhere. And like the, 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 the anime was on TV. Uh, everyone had the trading cards at my school. So I knew of it, but didn't you know, t- know too much about it. So he lent me his Game Boy Color with Pokemon Yellow. And for three weeks, I just devoured this game. I was like, oh my God, this is... <laughs> I'd already, you know, I, was, I, was into, I was into JRPGs by then. You know, I was hooked on Final Fantasy. I had uh, uh, Breath of Fire, you know, a bunch of old PS1 RPG, JRPGs. And this, so the gameplay of Pokemon Yellow instantly felt familiar to me. But it was the first game I'd played that had this you know amazing compulsive mechanic in it to collect things like catch all these monsters and there was just something about the world of pokemon it's such a pleasant place to exist in like i suffer from quite bad game rage when i lose in games i get really frustrated quite easily so that's why i'm never able to play things like dark souls for too long but with pokemon like there was none of that. It was just like a completely joyous experience. And because it was all I could do, I was kind of bedridden for three weeks. I was just sitting there with this Game Boy. And like, if I had been able to get out of bed, I don't think I'd have even wanted to. Like, that's how obsessed I became with, uh, with Pokemon Yellow. And since Pokemon Yellow, I have played, I think, pretty much every generation of, of Pokemon that there has been. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to uh, Sun and Moon in in December. So, like, alongside my my home console, which since I was 12 has always been a PlayStation. I had PlayStation, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, and finally, when a uh, PlayStation 4 came out, I had you know my own spending power. So I got a PlayStation 4, obviously. Um, but I've always had a Nintendo handhold ha- handheld as well, specifically to play Pokemon on. <laughs> I had the Game Boy Color. Then I got a Game Boy Advanced for my birthday one year and yeah then got the ds and uh recently um got a 3ds just so i could play pokemon i literally play nothing else on uh nintendo handheld devices it's just for pokemon because <laughs> it's they make the same game every time pretty much it is the same game with like they're, they're, new new it, elements in it, but. they definitely do. There have been some some versions that have maybe felt a lot more. I remember I reviewed Black and White Pokemon Black and White once, and I remember mm. thinking, "Wow, this is a huge change." And um, X and Y felt 
a little like that as well. But then mm. they went back to Ruby and Sapphire and um, Sun and Moon is definitely shaping up to be the most drastically different and have a yeah. lot more than all the previous ones. Like Hawaiian surfing Pokemon. Like a different, the, yeah. Like my fa- my favorite Pokemon, Raichu. My favorite yeah. Pokemon is Raichu. So the the Halohan surfing Raichu is just the most adorable, cutest yeah. thing I've ever seen in my life. I lost my my metaphorical shit when I saw that. <laughs> um, Raichu is my very favorite Pokemon, and he has always been my favorite Pokemon. So seeing that was really cool. Um. So you've had Pokemon Yellow on. So you've played you've played them all, but Pokemon Yellow. Going back to this one, but um, did you play Red and Blue? Um, is there is it just Pokemon Yellow that was the first generation one you played, and that's yeah, why you're it choosing w- it? It was just Pokemon Yellow, yeah. Um, because I think they brought Pokemon Yellow out, didn't they? After the TV show got so popular and people wanted Pikachu as their starter Pokemon, so they brought out Yellow, which was like the remastered red and blue but you got to have pikachu follow you around everywhere and yeah like the first generation of pokemon everyone knows they're the best pokemon the original 151 pokemon <laughs> you're not going to surpass those they were amazing pokemon and just the first time i just remember the first time i got my first gym badge just oh, the thrill of it like beating a gym leader because remember the first gym battle in pokemon yellow you have to fight brock and he's really hard he has like a geo dude and an Onyx. And when you've got Pokemon Yellow, you can't... You've only I got can't, Pikachu. You've only you? got Pikachu. He's electric type. So he's absolutely <laughs> useless against rock type Pokemon. So I had to... I remember just grinding and grinding away with a Nidoran and a Rattata. And just like doing rubbish tackle attacks on this. Oh, it took me ages to take Brock down. <laughs> but the feeling of accomplishment when I did it was like, yes! Oh, it's amazing. And just... I, I really get into these things like uh, when Pokemon Go first came out, I was into that for like, you know, it was all I wanted to do whenever I was walking from the train station to work, just glued to my phone. I get really addicted to these games. We have to collect things and just the mechanic of collecting them, <laughs> leveling them up. I love level, grinding and leveling up. Uh, grinding and leveling up is one of my favorite things to do in a video game. The same thing over and over and over and over and over again just to get a little bit stronger. Have you not heard that Far Cry 3 line? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I'm insane, I'm sure. So who is your favourite Pokemon then? Obviously, you're a big fan of the first generation of the 151. Do you have a favourite Pokemon? One that stuck with you since Pokemon mm, Yellow? My favourite starter Pokemon was always Squirtle. So I guess Blastoise was was always a favourite. But then... Blastoise yeah, Blastoise is cool. Charizard, obviously amazing. But when I get further into Pokemon games, I always like to try and build a team of Dragon-type Pokemon. Okay. So uh, Dragonite, obviously, is, a, is a, the classic one from the first generation. There have been some amazing Dragon-type Pokemon over the generations, as like uh, Salamence and Garchomp. and God, I can't even remember the names of all of them now. But yeah. A, a nice healthy team of dragon pokemon like my <laughs> ultimate game if they made like a just brought out sun and moon say and had it you finish sun and moon and then they had it backwards compatible with all the previous generations of pokemon and you could just collect all of them now <laughs> how amazing would that be that's my ultimate dream make that game freak dude. well that, that that was what was so good about gold and silver gold is my my personal favorite 
Pokemon, yeah. well, especially the remake, uh, Heart Gold and Soul Silver. Those games are superb. But being able to go to the to the different region after you'd finished and just be like, okay, so here's almost two games in one. Yeah, uh, it, it was mind blowing. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, and that's sort of maybe something that's been a little bit lacking in recent Pokemon games. We saw a bit of that in X and Y. You could do a little bit, mm. um, but. Maybe with Sun and Moon, we'll see. Maybe you'll be able to fly back to another region because you are in the Aloha. You're in the Aloha Islands now, so you're a little bit far away from like Johto, Kanto, and all. all yeah. Those. <laughs> I mean, it'd just be nice to have because I'm sure I've got a Game Boy Advance collecting dust somewhere with a a cartridge inside it with a box full of level 100 Pokemon that are just never going to see the light of day now. And I spent ages making them grow. And it's just a really sad thought to think of them just wasting away there. Well, I'd like to be able you, to, you know, bring them back. Somehow you can trade them all up and then you can get to the DS versions and you can trade them. But if you have like an original DS with the Game Boy Advance cartridge, you could trade them up mm. to, to one of the earlier DS Pokemon games, so like Platinum and Pearl and Diamond. Mm. And then you can keep going, you can get Pokemon Bank, and then you can install them in Pokemon Bank in the more recent versions of uh, Pokemon. So you could potentially get them all the way up to Sun and Moon. That sounds like a lot of effort, but it's. Yeah. It does. But I what, have to dig what, out my... what sounds like more effort, though, having to level all those Pokemon up again? Yeah, I, exactly. I guess, it, I guess it doesn't matter to you, though, because you really like grinding and leveling up. Yeah, I love I loved starting again. I, like, I, played <laughs> X, I played X quite recently, and it was the first time I played Pokemon in it. God, I, must, I think the, before I'd, I played Black and White. Was that the one before X and Y? It was Diamond and Pearl, then Black and White, then X and Y. And it must have been you know, a good three or four years since I played Pokemon. I was like, oh man, I'm like, you know, I'm 29 years old now. Maybe I won't like this anymore. I did. I still loved it. I still loved doing the same thing again, catching my little level six Pokemon and watching them blossom into level 70 behemoths. But yeah, I can't wait to do it all over again with Sun and Moon. <laughs> I know soon, but it comes yeah. up, it comes out like 10 days before Final Fantasy 15. So it's oh, a difficult man. time. It's a difficult time. Oh. <laughs> Final Fantasy 15 was oh, it was supposed to be coming out at the end of this month, wasn't it? Yeah, I didn't it I is. didn't realize that. Yeah. Damn. It was. It was and maybe what we'll be speaking in a few months time and saying it was meant to come out in on November 29th. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's a bit up in the air really whether that until the game is in my goddamn console. Yeah. Also between that time The Last Guardian is meant to come out as well. So all these mythological game creatures all these games that are thought to have been lost to time now actually getting release dates. But until they're imagine. physically in my PlayStation 4, I'm I'm unsure. Yeah. I mean, imagine imagine owning The Last Guardian and Final Fantasy XV. Whoever would have thought that would have happened? <laughs> both. Both yeah. whose development started when it was like Pokemon, Pearl and Diamond. Yeah. And to think yeah. how far we've progressed since then yeah. to now during the development of both those games is quite incredible. Anyway, we're going to move on to the next game now, which is a game I don't really know much about. Uh, okay. So I'm very interested to hear about it. I think I've heard you talk about it, I think, on Friday Features before. I'm not sure. Um, but I don't know too much about this game, so you're going to have to fill in the gaps for me. So let's listen to some music from this next game and let's talk about it.
theme you've chosen then to take with you to the lovely beach house in the tropical wherever that house is in the world is a game developed by Sony and yep. it was produced by Mr. Shuhei Yoshida himself. Um, I didn't actually know that. You didn't did know that? Yeah, no. Know. The producer on this game was Mr. Shu, Mr. Shuhei Yoshida. Amazing. Um, you know, big boss at PlayStation now. So, and it's a PlayStation game that released in Japan in 1999. Uh, and it came a little later to Europe in 2001. So it was quite late. And this was gearing up towards the PlayStation 2 era. It's a game called The Legend of Dragoon. Yes. Rob, please tell me about The Legend of Dragoon. Well, The Legend of Dragoon is like, uh, <laughs> it's almost, it's got mythical status among JRPG fans. I remember when I first put it into a Friday feature, the comments I got, like, oh yeah, you put Dr- Legend of Dragoon in. One of my favourite games ever. And it really is, like, it's staggeringly derivative of uh, Final Fantasy. Like, unapologetically <laughs> just rinses it. Like, it so badly wants to be Final Fantasy. And it's, if I'm being honest, it's, it's nowhere near as good. Like, the translation is bad. Like, the story is, you know, really kind of melodramatic. And what if you had to write, like, a a piss take of a JRPG story, you would write The Legend of Dragoon. It's like the main character, he's got spiky hair. He lives in a little remote village, but there's an evil empire that comes over right at the beginning and destroys his village whilst he's out, you know, practicing his swordsmanship in the woods because he's got dreams of becoming, you know, aspiring to leave his village and become a heroic knight. And, oh, my God, he goes back to the village and all his family have been killed. He's like, oh, I've got to go and avenge them. And he sets off on his quest and he takes his, you know, his childhood sweetheart with him, who's a girl who can do healing magic. And then another mysterious girl called Rose comes in and she's all dark and mysterious and no one knows what she's like. And then, you know, the plot kind of peels back and it turns out the evil empire is being controlled by this evil magic force, which in the end turns out to be your hero's dad. That's how <laughs> that's how cliched we get. <laughs> like the big bad guy in Legend of Dragoon is your character's dad. So it's like this staggeringly cliched JRPG wannabe game. Yeah. But for some reason, it was just amazing like i was i played final fantasy 7 and final fantasy 8 by this time two incredible games and again it was this is another darren one my friend darren like he had this game before me and he was you know he was a massive final fantasy fan he's like you gotta come around my house and play this new game i've got legend of dragoon it's amazing and uh i always remember like after school i would race over to his house and his parents chain smoked and so there was always like this close smoky feeling to this room and to this day whenever I smell cigarette smoke I always remember the legend of Dragoon because I just remember sitting in his uh, little lounge area just smoke hanging in the air and just playing this game just glowing away on this little portable tv he had in the corner of the room with its tinny little sound and its washed out <laughs> colors but it was so good and I remember just I just watched him play the entire thing like must have been weeks and weeks and weeks of going around his house. Had this amazing battle system where you had these things called additions, where when you pressed attack, you'd have to execute, you'd have to time this combo and the enemies could counter you halfway through it. And if they countered you, you'd have to press circle instead of X to get through to the next stage of the combo. And it was, 
and you could uh, you each character had their own dragoon soul and they could transform into a dragoon which is sort of like a, a limit break you would have in final fantasy yeah and the story was just you know if as a 13 year old boy if i'd have you know if i played final fantasy 7 and someone had said to me okay now you make your game you make you know, how what kind of game do you want to make with final fantasy 7 and you know hot in my brain i would have written something <laughs> like legend of dragoon like <laughs> kind of thing i'd read lord of the rings and i'd written down my own little fantasy story and i was 11 and it had this you know this hero who lived in a leafy village and a wizard came to guide him and they went on yeah. a quest and they were the chased mo- by these darkspawn <laughs> and they ended up at this elven council village and then or oh, some dwarves come in and then they go off on another that kind of thing but again, I guess I was the exact right age for this just to work. It just worked. And there's something about that game that the story is just really compelling, even though it's massively cliched. Everything about that game is cliched. But when you copy so many good things, I guess you have a chance of making a good thing. Yeah. And Legend of Dragoon was just just kind of ticked all the boxes for what I wanted. I was, I'd played Final Fantasy VII. I wanted more of that. I was really hungry for more of that. And The Legend of Dragoon completely delivered on everything that I wanted. And it was just, oh, it was great. What a game. It's weird that <laughs> you're almost taking a second Final Fantasy VII, like a sort of knockoff yeah. Chinese version of, yeah. <laughs> of the game. Like. Um, but... Obviously, it did something right. And it's weird because when you think about, like, coming off the back of games, say, um, I don't know what if I've been playing recently. Um, I've been playing, like, recently, many people played, like, The Witcher 3 or something. Mm. And that, that hunger. Oh, actually, my girlfriend recently played Dragon Quest, uh, Dragon Age Inquisition. Dragon yeah. Age Inquisition. And then she was hungry to play, like, another Western RPG. So I was like, oh, I'll play The Witcher. And she's yep. like, oh, I don't know. It looks okay. I'll give it a go. <laughs> I really liked Dragon Age Inquisition. And I was like, well, if you enjoyed that, you'll definitely like The Witcher because it's a far superior mm. RPG mm. in many ways. And she did. And she it's that sort of hunger to look for something very similar to what you have. But a lot of the time, you can be incredibly disappointed because it just isn't like yeah the game you want or it's not as good but it's pretty cool to hear that you went looking for something like final fantasy 7 and actually found something that was almost just as good to you uh, i mean when i played it i remember me and darren were sitting there and darren had an older brother who was always like he'd always completed all the games before us and he yeah. thought it was the, uh, he i remember him saying this is the best game i've ever played and it's kind of that thing where you come out like i said i came out of the matrix reloaded which i watch now and as everyone knows objectively it's shit but back when i was 15 i came out of that cinema i was like that was the best film i've yeah. ever seen amazing <laughs> you see that actually and i played a legend of dragoon and i was like this is better than Final Fantasy VII. This is the best game I've ever played because it was just more of the same. But I guess it's just the fact that it was different. Like, and when you're a kid, like, what what is you know quality? It's just it's not a thing you think about. It was just tonally it was the same, but it was different. And I guess because it was new, I just you know completely got sucked in again, like I did with Final Fantasy VII, <laughs> and. It's definitely a worse game than Final Fantasy VII. By a million miles, it's a worse game than Final Fantasy VII. Um, there's no way I would ever include it in my list of like top 10 games of all time or anything. 
technically. Yeah. Just the memories it invokes and how <laughs> how obsessed with it I was and how it pulled me in. Yeah, it was a an amazing, amazing game. And we were all swept up with it and we were all just evangelising about it. Like, oh, Legend of Dragoon. And an official PlayStation magazine gave it five out of ten. And I remember being up in arms about it. I was like, what the hell? The I original fanboy raging. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it was a YouTube, I would be straight on YouTube. Five out of ten? Really? Question mark, question mark, question mark. You guys don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Man, this is an eight at least. (laughs) (laughs) So this is is the game where the main character is called Dart, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's called Dart. Dart. What what an excellent name. (laughs) I wish I was called Dart. Hey, Dart, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) What's a better name, Dart or Cloud? What would you rather be preferred to be called? Oh, Cloud. Cloud's a cool name, isn't it? Dart is an awful name. Let's not let's not beat around the bush. Dart is an awful name. <laughs> I just remembered there was a there was a character. There was like the thing that killed Dart's parents and why he was an orphan because he was an orphan as well. Obviously, uh, he was his parents were killed by the black monster. The black monster. You ask like an eight year old kid to name an evil monster in like a creative writing class, and they probably come up with something called the black monster. Which turns out, the black monster turned out to be Rose, the mysterious, you know, the dark, mysterious, intriguing woman that joins your party. She turned out to be the black monster. Another amazing twist. What a game. (laughs) But unfortunately, I don't think we'll be seeing a remaster of that game anytime soon. No, sadly. So you'll have to hold those memories very tightly in the air while your deserted island is full of jrpgs but we're gonna talk about a sports game next yeah and a sports game that's featured on this show before we don't get many sports games um mm. so it's always intriguing when they come along but this game must have must have meant a lot um to the people who played it because steve burns also chose this game as well yeah um so this must have been like the definitive version of this game so i'm mm. very interested to hear what you say so let's listen to some if I remember, it was like electro dance music <laughs> that was part of the menu of this game. So let's listen to some music <laughs> from this game and let's dive straight into it. So Rob, the sports game that you have chosen is a game developed by Konami. Um, it was released for the PlayStation 2. Uh, it was also released on the Xbox 360, and it was also released on like the PSP and the DS as well. Um, it released for the PlayStation 2 back in 2006, and uh, 
yeah, this game was is held in some pretty high regard as one of the one of the better football games. It's mm. uh Pro Evolution Soccer Six. So Pez Six. six. Yeah, six. Yep. Rob, why Pez Six? Why are you taking Pez Six with you? Well, uh, I've always, I mean, I love, I love football. I'm in the Venn diagram. I'm that little tiny bit in the middle of people who love JRPGs and also really love football. You, there are not you, many you, of us. you are me. We are, we are, <laughs> we are the same. In school, Excellent. hung out with people who played football, was on the football yeah. team, went home, hid in a corner and played yeah. RPGs. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. That. That, that was me. So <laughs> throughout, throughout my gaming life, I've always had like a main game that I'm playing and that's usually like a big RPG. And then I also have, a cooldown game which for years has always been Pez. It's always Pez. Um, I have to have a football game on the go because I love football and I don't think anyone can argue that on PS2 Pez was just the king of football. FIFA was just nowhere even close to Pez on PS2. Yeah, it really it was wasn't just, it, it really wasn't no. until like maybe FIFA 08, FIFA 09, when the PlayStation 3, yeah. Xbox 360 era kicked in, that FIFA really started to maybe take the reins a little more. Mm. But it seems like um, the tide is turning again with the most recent PES editions. I mean, I keep on getting told I'm crazy, but I think PES has been better than FIFA for the last three years. Um, I did diverge and betrayed PES for about three years around the FIFA 10 mark. <laughs> uh, FIFA 10, FIFA 11, FIFA 12, I think. I FIFA 12 FIFA. was a very good game, so mm. I'm not surprised. Um, but most recently, yeah, as you said, last year, Pez was very, very good. Very, very good. It is, and uh, I've been back to playing Pez again now. The Pez 2017 demo is really, really impressive as well. But uh, back to Pez 6, like it was the best game of the PS2 era of pez like i remember pez 3 being like the biggest step up in terms of uh, an iteration in a leap between iterations of it like pez 2 to pez 3 was a huge leap and then pez 4 5 and 6 just slightly improved pez 3 each and every time and pez 6 like football games i get i can't imagine how hard it is to make a football game because like the best football games what they do is they and Pez 6 does this better, I think, than any football game, is they you have to kind of take away that barrier that is the controller. Like, the controller is almost like a barrier when it comes to a football game. You've got, you, you've got what you think, you're thinking about what you want to do, and the controller has to kind of translate that thought into yeah. an action on the football pitch. And unlike, uh, I don't think any other kind of genre of game has this, like, it's so hard to translate your thoughts into a controller and then make men on a football pitch perform how you want them to perform. It's not just like passing to a specific person. It's like the speed of the pass, when to play the pass. And Pez 6 for me uh, was the game that kind of removed that barrier more than anything. I remember uh, I was at university at the time when that came out and I had like a bunch of friends who we all loved playing Pez and I organised like a Pez league and I even was sad enough to like write out fixtures on it and my own little <laughs> statistics and kind of thing. And those, those free hours of university yeah. where you should be <laughs> yeah. taking lectures. <laughs> exactly. And I used to host these around at my house, the house that was one house away from where Gav Murphy lived and I never knew. Um, but uh, we'd all come around to my house and we'd get in my little room and we'd sit around my tiny television on, on my PS2 and we'd play Pez 6. And... I just remember playing it 
just there was no kind of you just played football because quite often in football games you have to you have two opponents like you you're playing your on-field opponent and you're also battling against the game like you have to make you have to kind of play the game rather than play football if you see what i'm saying like yeah. you have to you have to know what pez is going to do or what fifa's going to do if you do a specific thing so you have to learn the games but pez 6 it just felt like i was just doing what i wanted to do on the football pitch i would think about you know where i wanted to pass where i wanted to move and you would you know like in football you see two or three passes ahead you're like okay kind of exploit some space there and i didn't have to I didn't have to battle the controls with Pez 6. It just like flowed and it sounds really weird. And it's always, we always joke about it on Access. Like it's really, really hard to articulate why uh, a game, a football game is, is better than it was last year. We always end up coming up with yeah. shit wanky words like, oh, it's, <laughs> it's a bit weightier this year. The passing feels more crisp. And I remember on a Pez 2017 video Dave and I have done recently, I, I think the word came, the word organic came out of my mouth when it's describing it, Pez 2017. It's it really organic. weird. It is like, really I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Sorry, what does that I, mean? I totally understand you uh, when you say this because for many, many years, I, like in my friend group of people who played games and stuff like that, I'd be the only person who played like FIFA or Pez. Yeah. And they'd always wonder, why do you buy the same game every year kind of thing? And it's like, it's really hard to explain that as someone who plays it and understands football, the more the game progresses towards actual simulation of real football and the, the mm. actual feel and movement of football, you can feel the direct changes. But unless you know this, it you will never see any difference. And it is so hard to explain that to people who don't know or don't play yeah. those games. And like another thing about uh, Pez 6 that I always loved was um, like the PS2 Pezzes, they had their their eight-way movement system. Like in, in modern football games, it's, you know, we always get the 360-degree movement touted, and that's always like the big back-of-the-box selling point. Oh, you can move 360 degrees, and it's all exciting. But <laughs> the eight-way movement on PS2 Pez, for me, just fe- it felt like I was more in control of my players. Like in FIFA, often I will just like... I will kind of, you know, if I'm running down the line, for instance, if I'm not pressing the analog stick in exactly the direction I want to go, my player will just kind of just slightly veer off the pitch and just run it out for a throw in. And that's rubbish. Like professional, you just shouldn't have to think about that in a football game. A professional footballer, if he's running down the line, wouldn't have to think to himself, okay, let's make sure I don't run off the edge of the pitch. Yeah. He's not going to be thinking that. Like, and so like the eight-way movement of, of uh, PS2 Pez, like, I just liked the way I could just, okay, I'm going to push the left stick in that general direction. I know my player is going to sprint down the line. And then you could do sharp, precise movements. Like, you could cut inside really sharply, like actual footballers do. They don't, when, they, when a footballer changes direction, they don't, you know, decelerate and slowly, slowly, in a nice, smooth, fluid, circular motion, turn around slowly and, like, roll, like they do in FIFA at the moment. Like yeah. the kind of over animated turning circles they have in FIFA. Like they can't, you look at Messi, he doesn't, you know, turn like that. He snaps and he flows and he, he changes direction really quickly. And I don't think you're ever going to be able to really replicate that in football. But I think like the eight way movement system was as close as you could get to it. Like you could, okay, I'm flicking the right stick now and you'd snap into that direction. And Pez 6 just kind of 
nailed the just nailed that feeling of being able to play football exactly how you wanted without having to battle with the controls and that's for me is is why it is the best pez how does it compare to like <clears throat> how does it compare to like modern pez games do you feel like it still holds its own or is there oh, something uniquely special to that game i guess uh, i guess it's kind of the nostalgia pulling on me again because okay pez is uh I, I definitely think Pez is better than it's ever been right now. Like Pez 2016, I think is you know objectively the best Pez game there has been, and I'm sure 2017 is going to improve on that again. But it's just another thing when I'm thinking about it. Pez 6 is just that game that I remember most fondly because it was the pinnacle of PS2 era Pez when Pez was just amazing, and I had amazing fun playing it with all my friends at university. And it was just that game that. I would just go back to and play and play and play and play and play. So I I would have to play it again, I think, to see how it stacks up to, to modern Pez. I'm sure modern Pez is, is much better. Um, <laughs> but there's just something, there's something magic about Pez 6. It was absolutely amazing. Well, you're going to have a heck of a lot of time to play it on the deserted island. So good. I, I wouldn't <laughs> worry about that too much. Um, the only shame about this game is that on the front cover is john terry so that is unfortunate john terry john terry no he was on pez 5 i think he was on the european version of this game with adriano Um, oh was he okay oh yeah because i remember my yeah it was like a gold colored game. i just i think it was just adriano on the one that i remember maybe john terry wasn't it i remember um, on the cover of pez 5 it was like a face-off between thierry Henry and john terry and pierre luigi colina was on pez 4 like there was like there was like the multiple cover. versions. I think like on the like one of the versions was like Fabregas for like Spain and Europe and yeah. Uh, like I think the German one had like Schweinsteiger on it and it was all like random players. I think one of the European ones had John Terry on it and oh, John Terry, what a shit! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he wasn't. He wasn't on my copy of Pez Six. Good, yeah, and 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 we'll that. make sure that the copy that gets sent to you for that you can take with you is yeah. the one that doesn't have John Terry on it. Good. <laughs> so we're going to move on to another RPG now. Actually, we're coming to the last two games now, which are both mm-hmm. RPGs, but not of the Japanese kind. No. So we're going to move into Rob's penultimate game now. So let's listen to some excellent music and let's dive straight into it. So we're coming to your second to last game now, Rob, and it's a RPG, as we said. Um, 
And I mean, I don't think it's a series I've heard you talk about before much. Uh, obviously, mm. this is a, a sort of older version of this series with, uh, you know, the the most recent version of, well, the most recent game in this series being an absolute smash hit. This game maybe doesn't get talked about as much, although it has yeah. appeared on this show, I think, twice before. So there's definitely some love for it. Um, it's the game developed by Bethesda Game Studios and published by Bethesda Softworks. It's the fourth game in the Elder Scrolls series and was one of yeah. the first um, Xbox 360 games, the first generational games of the last generation. It released in 2006. It's Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion. Rob, yeah. please tell me why Elder Scrolls Oblivion is a game you're taking with you. Well, uh, I love the Elder Scrolls. Now I love the Elder Scrolls. And it was a like a like almost like a graduation for me when I first got my PS3. Obviously, I wanted to hunt down some more <coughs> RPGs to play because I loved RPGs. And I'd seen all these you know glowing reviews. I'd, I'd never even heard of the Elder Scrolls before. So I was like, okay, man, I've got to check out this game. Everyone's saying how absolutely amazing it was. And again, it was one of those wow moments for me where it was playing something that was completely unlike anything I'd played before. I mean, I'd played open world games before, like I'd played uh, GTA, San Andreas, Vice City, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I don't think I'd ever played an RPG that was as big and open and as free as uh, Oblivion was. And... In term, I think I think Skyrim is probably a better game, and I hear Morrowind is a better game. I never played Morrowind, much to my shame. I would love to get have a chance to go back and play Morrowind. Um, but Oblivion was the first Elder Scrolls game I played, and it absolutely blew me away with how big it was and the amount of freedom that you had in it, and just how different it was to JRPGs. Because I was like, I'd almost kind of thrown all my eggs in the JRPG basket. Like I had loads of JRPGs, and it was kind of that time where the genre was getting, you know, maybe slightly stale. It wasn't moving with the times as much, and the Western RPGs were starting to kind of take hold. And sorry, my dog's in here shaking <laughs> her head really loudly. I wondered if you were um, like ringing a bell then. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was just uh, like a mind-blowing thing. Like uh, Bethesda games always do that cool thing where you start off like in like in a rubbish area, like a prison cell. You start off in a prison in uh, Oblivion, and you go through the sewers, and you have to kill some rats, and you have to learn how to use a crossbow, and you fight a goblin, and you fight some soldiers, and then you get out of the sewer, and the ambient music kicks in, and the sunlight comes down, and you just look at this place, and you're like. See, I I can actually go anywhere, and just that feeling of just being able to go anywhere, just wherever the hell I wanted to go and do whatever I wanted, and the fact that you could, I loved that you could kill shopkeepers and then not be able to use that shop again. Like that was an amazing thing to me. Like I can actually kill this NPC and then I won't be able to ever buy anything from his shop. <laughs> just the fact that you could you could have a permanent. Uh, you could make a permanent mark on the world. Yeah, like a lasting effect uh, yeah, upon the, the whole game world, yeah. I mean, and J the JRPGs I've been playing are obviously so scripted in terms of story and, and how you can affect the world, how you interact with the world. You don't really interact with the world in JRPGs. You're kind of taken along for a ride, and that ride is often an amazing ride. But you're really able, to, and it really opened my mind to how uh, like role-playing games like this 
how you could actually do some serious role playing. Like you could seriously affect and make your mark on the world and play it however you wanted to play. And Oblivion, I mean, that's that's common course now for RPGs. All the customization options you have, all the different choices you have for how you want to play it. But this was the first game where I really felt that choice. And it was an absolutely mind-blowing game, huge game. And I just got completely swept up in the lore, in the story, and just the, the design of it, the look of it was, uh, as a massive Tolkien nerd, was I just absolutely ate it up. I was like, oh, just the look of these buildings. It looked like I was in Gondor, the, the Imperial City <laughs> right in the middle. It just looked amazing. I just absolutely loved being in that world and must have put at least 300 hours into it. Just, Just absolutely swept up in it. So yeah, that's why that's why I put Oblivion on my list. <laughs> How so? Obviously, Skyrim came out. Um, you know, I guess we're we're further away from Skyrim than Skyrim was to Oblivion now, which is a scary thought. Man, yeah, five years between them. Uh, Skyrim was sort of the dead point between Oblivion and now. Um, Skyrim was this huge smash hit that sort of took what Oblivion started and mm. just improved upon it. Um, were you a big fan of Skyrim? How how was Skyrim? Because as you said, you're like a Tolkien nerd. Um, Skyrim very different from that sort of style of fantasy. Mm, how abs- how I, was Skyrim for you? I absolutely loved Skyrim. Again, I I devout like it, I could have easily put Skyrim on this list in, instead of Oblivion. I just chose Oblivion because it was like the first one that I played that really kind of blew me away. So by the time Skyrim came along, I was I was expecting it. And it kind of met all my expectations. I thought it was better than Oblivion. Just technically, I thought the story was you know, just a, an amazingly involving world to be in. And I, I quite often have an argument with, with Holly about this. She always prefers uh, Dragon Age to the Elder Scrolls because Dragon Age has a very, it, you know, it holds your hand through its narrative. It gives you a story to follow. Whereas uh, the Elder Scrolls games, you kind of, you can... There is a story there and you can follow separate quest lines, but you can very much make your own story in it as well. Yeah. There's a bit more room for, there's a bit more room for personal, like personal experiences. Whereas Mm. in Dragon Age, you're always sort of, you are playing a character you make, but the character has a voice and seems like it's kind of own character. Like it's maybe a disconnect from yourself. So the personal effect that that game can have is a little more third person than it is in Skyrim or Oblivion where you experience things because you manipulated something. Mm, Definitely. And just having that freedom, as I said, to be able to do what I wanted to just play quest. If I didn't want to do a specific quest, I just wouldn't do that quest. I don't think I touched the main story in Oblivion for about 50 hours. Like I was level 30 something before I even started on the main story. So it just, <laughs> I just, I just I couldn't believe the freedom that I had and the, just the size of it as well. And the fact that you could go off into the mountains and you could look into the middle of it and you could see the tower of uh, of the imperial city just reaching up into the sky from like miles away like oh god that i got that feeling of just again it's a game that really kind of gives you an incredible sense of adventure but in a in a in a different way to final fantasy did just in a in a kind of you can make your own of adventure kind of way and it's it's really weird because i've been thinking a lot about this recently especially um 
I was sort of toying with the idea of playing some Final Fantasies again before 15 came out. Mm. And I sort of thought about playing maybe Final Fantasy 13 again and get, almost giving it a second chance and, and trying it. And I was sort of thinking about the definition of a, an RPG and an open world and how they differ. You wouldn't consider like a game like GTA 5 like an RPG, mm. but we almost symbiotically associate RPGs and open worlds as one thing. Like mm. people get disappointed with RPGs if then if they're not open world. Yeah. Like like Oblivion or like Skyrim. But it, there are very rare there are very rare cases of JRPGs that are actually open world, like Xenoblade Chronicles for example. Mm. There are a lot a lot of JRPGs that they give you some freedom about which town you want to go to but there isn't like a world to explore if you get me there is definitely a limitation to what where the boundaries are whereas in games like oblivion and scan that is definitely a little more there doesn't seem to be any barriers which is weird Mm. then that games like final fantasy 13 were so heavily criticized for being like quote unquote linear and then opening to an open world so i find it really interesting recently that the differences between open world and an RPG and then that Venn diagram of when they meet in the middle and you have games like Skyrim and Xenoblade Chronicles. Do you, how do you sort of feel? Cause you play a lot of RPGs. Obviously mm. you're a big fan of both JRPGs and Western RPGs. Are they similar in some way or are they like completely two different things? And should one lean a bit more on the other? Is there stuff that you don't like about Western RPGs that JRPGs do a lot better and then vice versa kind of thing? I don't know. It's a weird one, isn't it? And I've, I have thought about it a bit when you think, you know, why, why do you have to have like open world RPGs on one side, like Western RPGs and then JRPGs on the other side and, you kind of got these two things. You've got JRPGs that really heavily focused on their central narrative and pulling this group of characters through this story. Yeah. And they, they want to tell you a story. That's their main goal. And that's kind of the thing that has, has always been in JRPGs. That's their primary focus is not for you to explore the world that they've made. They want, they want to show you the world they've made. They don't want you to explore it necessarily at your own pace. They want to build an exciting, like a roller coaster for you to go on and take you through that. Whereas uh, like open world Western RPGs are kind of, you know, don't want to hold your hand. And it is a weird, like, why, why do they have to be separate things? Like, I don't know. And like the last game on my list, I think, is a really interesting game because I think it successfully merges both of those having, together. Yeah, <laughs> having a huge open world and having a really exciting story going through it at the same time, and yeah, it's a it's, it is an odd one. I don't I don't know why they have to be separate things, it, and I think we're seeing influences of like with Final Fantasy fifteen, especially yeah. where JRPG developers are thinking, oh shit people like open worlds we should you know we should experiment with this and give players more freedom and it's really weird because uh, final fantasy 15 was what i was going to bring up next because you know the start of that game and for a big portion of it is a huge open world what we've seen mm. in episode this game is like the main big open world area and although they say open world we obviously know that 
as a Japanese developer, there are going to be some strange limitations that don't allow you to go to certain areas and stuff. But Tabata-san has said that the latter half of the game is more linear and more focused. And that mm. seemed to cause like quite a bit of upset or like an uproar <laughs> from people, which is really weird because when you come into the, if you're trying to tell a story and, and you are in a sense trying to get to the end point, especially Final Fantasy 15 seems to take place over a certain amount of time. Um, as a developer, you want to force the player into a position where they have to try and finish the story that you've been trying to tell. When, mm. As you said, with Oblivion, it took you 50 hours before you started the main story. And that sort of detracts from how maybe good the story might be. If you can, yeah. like, if you're all of a sudden on, like, an epic quest and things are starting to get heated up and they're coming to a pinnacle climax, and then all of a sudden you go fuck off and steal someone's cheese from a house, it's, <laughs> it does detract a little bit. And it works both in both in the favor of oh yeah, the player can do what they want, but also at the same time, oh look, the developer is trying to show us that, hey, they have this cool story that they want to tell, so they've had to develop a game system that allows you to experience that. Yet, one seems to be wildly accepted as better than the other, which is really mm. strange to me. And the concept of RPG, which you know means role-playing, even though almost in any video game that has a character, you are role-playing a yeah. character... It is a weird thing that we're coming to this point now where we have Western RPGs, JRPGs is two separate things and they both mean certain things. Like one means yeah. open world, do what you like. The other means grinding, big powerful weapons, turn-based. It is really strange. I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. and um, But yeah, it is very strange. I'm yeah, it not, is weird, isn't it? I'm not really sure if I've just rambled on a bit now about some brain aneurysm I've been having over the past, <laughs> past few days about JRPGs and RPGs. But as you rightly said, the next game and the final game you have chosen yeah. for your deserted place is a game that is wildly successful because it proves that you can do both. You can do both yes. those things. And... um it is pretty much becoming defined as one of the best games ever made um, mm. for good reason. So I think it's about time that we move away from Oblivion and my ramblings to talk about Rob's final game. So now we're stepping into Rob's final game. And this game, I think you can pretty much guess from what we've been hinting at about mm. <laughs> the genre it is and how successful it is. 
I think it's it holds the record for the most selections for this list now. I think it's been oh, featured really? on the most most amount of uh, lists alongside Resident Evil 4, which also appears on quite a lot of lists. Mm. Um, and it's easily the most recent game in people's memory alongside some other games like Dark Souls and stuff. Um, it's developed by CD Projekt Red. It released for the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. It's the third game in the successful Witcher series. It's, of course, the open-world action role-playing game that is The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Rob, please tell me why the final game you're taking today is The Witcher 3. Well, The Witcher 3 is just um, so much better than anything else that's come <laughs> out for ages. It's, still, it's, almost, it's almost embarrassing how much better The Witcher 3 is than almost every other game ever. It, it's a game I've been playing solidly now for over a year. Like I started playing it when it first came out, what, May 2015, I think it first came out. Yeah, and last year, yeah. Obviously, I don't get as much spare time as I used to when I was, you know, a kid or at uni. But whenever I've had a chance, I've been, you know, powering through this game. And I've put in over 350 hours into it. I'm still not finished Blood and Wine. I'm still on Blood and Wine. I've not finished the story in that. It's just stupidly big. It's unbelievably good looking. So well written. And does things. And has a kind of... Like, I'd have occasions where I'd play it. And then I wouldn't play it again for like a month or so. For whatever reason. And I'd go back to it. And I'd find myself almost kind of, you could almost separate The Witcher 3 up into, it's almost like seasons of a TV show. The quests, the side quests are so meaty and well-rounded and thought out. Like, you can have like a completely different adventure every day you play The Witcher and you get involved in a completely different story. And every story is really satisfying and has an, an intriguing conclusion to it. You don't get any quests that are like, you know, in big open world games, you often get massive repetition where you have to do a certain thing a bunch of times. Kill 10 you don't, grunts. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to do that in The Witcher. Deliver eight sacks like, of wheat or something like that. Like, yeah, like the closest you get to that in The Witcher is like destroying monster nests or, you know, finding secret guarded treasure. But the amount of side quests in there that are just on their own, really brilliant stories, like stories that could last maybe 20 minutes, stories that could last an hour, two hours, like uh, the Bloody Baron quest is a famous one. You know, it's an amazing quest. But I remember like some of the Witcher hunts you do and some of the decisions you have to make and the moral ambiguity of those decisions. And quite a lot of games like to boast about how they've got morally grey decisions and you don't know what's right and you don't know what's wrong, but you always know what's right and what's wrong. With The Witcher 3, you genuinely don't. Like, there is no right and wrong. I remember a certain Witcher hunt I did, a uh, Witcher quest, um, hunting, a, it was a Leshen, I think it was, one of the most amazingly creepy monsters that I think they designed for the game. And it was plaguing this village, and it placed, like, a curse on one of the villagers, and there's, like, the villagers were divided up into two separate, you know, kind of sects, and they one would be accusing the other, and you'd have to decide, basically, whether to kill this cursed person or not or kind of spare them and basically you would i picked what i thought would be the better outcome and it turned out that the the side of the village i'd sided with was a bit you know maniacal (laughs) i got back after killing the lesson and they they'd slaughtered like the other half of the village so i was i was like oh man 
That didn't turn out very well, but at Oops. least I got paid. <laughs> yeah, and that's the cool thing about it. I, I kind of role played The Witcher Three as a, as a cold. Just I'm just interested in the money. Like if if I did something for someone, like I found like a child of some poor old poverty stricken peasant, and they were like, "Oh, thank you so much for finding my son for me, Master Witcher." And you get the dialogue option. That's, That's 50 right. crowns, please, mate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, okay, where's my money? Or, okay, that's fine. I'll just do it out of the good kindness of my heart. And I found myself picking the money option. Like, no, <laughs> I don't work for free. Give me your damn money. And then and, bartering for as much yeah. as possible. <laughs> and just the, the way it's written as well, it's just so well written. It's like a TV show. You could make a game you, you could make an episode of Game of Thrones out of some of the dialogue that's in The Witcher 3. It's, some of it's really funny. And the fact that, you know, it's been made by a Polish studio and yet it's so good in English still is just a phenomenally impressive thing. And the fact that it's that big and still as good looking as it is as well is yeah. it's stupid. It's stupidly good, The Witcher 3. <laughs> and I can't play a game for as long as I've played it and enjoyed it as much as I have and not put it on a list of games I would take to a desert island. So there's no like special emotional memory with The Witcher 3 for me. It doesn't like mean anything specifically in my life. It's just bloody such a ridiculously good game. It's just that... bloody good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny because the TV comparison, uh, I think is a really apt one. I never really thought of it like that. But the quests are so meaty in their own that they're like, 30 to 30 minutes to an hour long usually the mm. quests don't drag on for too long unless there's sort of a chain of interesting events that happen yeah. the witcher 3 isn't they're not quests that take ages because you're you're spent looking for something or you're getting frustrated about oh i can't find this or i can't kill this they're very um bite-sized but the it's the interesting events that unfold during them that maybe takes up the time um mm. but it is kind of that TV episode thing where you might have a quest and you do it for 30 minutes and that was a really intriguing side story whilst also the big main story is happening in the background and mm. over the period of the series, you know, you do all these mini things but then there's this big overarching story that happens between, you know, the first episode and the last. It's very much like that. It's still one of the only games I've ever experienced where I've believed NPC dialogue Yes. Because one of the things that frustrates me about video games is it doesn't matter how well a game is written. The NPCs that you encounter, if they're like sort of maybe an afterthought for the developer, like they think, oh, not many people are going to pay attention to the NPCs or something. And yet you spend most of your time in RPGs talking to NPCs and the NPC dialogue is really flat or really repetitive. Like Skyrim, for example, you know, arrow in the knee type. Mm-hmm. just you know that's sort of very sort of you can't have everyone be a character it's just impossible in a video game that is so big like that but you know you can sort of work towards creating a believable world whereas the witcher 3 just throws all that out the window and every character yeah. i felt was individual and made the the world just seem so bloody real and it's amazing yeah you get, you'd even get that. Pro, you get that thing you get in RPGs where you recognise the same voice actor voicing like you know twenty character, twenty NPCs. Yeah. It's like a guy in The Witcher who has a really kind of deep, throaty, raspy voice, and he always voices like horrible guardsmen and revolting peasant characters. And I love walking through a village in The Witcher 
whenever I hear this voice actor come on, be like, ah, fuck off, Witcher. Get your fuck out of this village. What the fuck you Get out of it. And it'll be like, a, or if a gang of bandits turn up, it was like, what, lads, let's fucking sort this prick out. And he's got like a really amazing kind of smoky quality to his voice and I love him and you get like a gang of bandits turning up and they've got like tin pots for helmets and they've just been just the I love the feeling of being an amazingly powerful smooth awesome dude just walking around this place and all these bandits attack and you're just thinking to yourself come on then just try it please try it yeah and then you just (laughs) flash your sword out and absolutely destroy it's the most satisfying thing ever just i like just walking in the witcher i don't go on horseback i kind of just walk through it like a wandering you know samurai samurai warrior almost and just that feeling of power you get from it and yeah like you said the believability of every single npc in that world is just ridiculous how detailed it is and how much effort has gone into making that and the dlc they've released is as good as like the main game if not better in terms of the story you have and it also has the story like we said it has the open world and it has the story that is exciting it's full of characters that you care for and you get pulled through this amazing ride but you can also go off and do whatever the hell you want at the same time. And it it just nails, it proves that you can have a massive open world and also a really engaging central narrative at the same time. And that that narrative can still feel well-paced, exciting and involving, even if it takes you God knows how long to do it and to get around to actually doing the story quests. It's... (laughs) It's, uh, it's well, I've spoken. There are a few games now that are coming up a lot on this show, and it is weird because you think you'd run out of things to say about them without mm. repeating yourself. Um, but there is just so much to talk about when it comes to games like The Witcher Three, like from the NPCs to the main character to the story to the world to the graphics to the combat to the just the list goes on for how polished and fantastic that game is, and just how. I think everyone expected it was going to be good because The Witcher 2 was a good game. It had its problems and feels a little clunky now, but at the time, it was a spectacular RPG. And so I think people expected The Witcher 3 was going to be good, but I'm just not sure they expected it to be that good. Like, Mm. just how damn good it was and how it continued with its story DLC and um, the most recent DLC as well. Just good game just such a good game <laughs> yeah it's it's ridiculous absolutely ridiculous how good it is so i just want to give a quick quick shout out to derek who listens to the show and he recently has moved to poland to work at cd project red oh really yes so derek who listens to the show um he used to work at rockstar and now he is setting his sights on the european isles to go to yeah. cd project red and help those guys out so good luck to derek working at cd project red and uh maybe the work you do at cd project red in the future will appear on this show as well so <laughs> if so they make all. anything as good as the witcher 3 i mean I'll, you know i can't wait for <laughs> cyberpunk i really i know they said they're not going to make any witcher but surely they've got to make the witcher 4 someday please please do i imagine but Geralt's story over though do you reckon do you think oh, it's yeah it's ambiguously oh. you can do oh. anything 
they can they can definitely bring him back if they want to. And I think they'd be foolish not to. Like he's such a great character and it's had such amazing critical and commercial success. You'd be like it'd be very brave of them to to leave the Witcher now and to just carry on and do new IPs. That'd be a very brave decision. I mean, I'd be massively excited to play whatever they come up with, but if they if the Witcher 3 has ended now, then it's been amazing, but obviously I'd love to see more. Excellent. Well, Rob, I think we've come to the end of your stint here on planet Earth. Now you have to go to the other realm. <laughs> that is the video game Deserted Island. Uh, taking all these eight games with you. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so very much for having me. It's been brilliant. No problem. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask you the final question then. Mm-hmm. And the final question, as always, is barring PC, if you could take any console with you, so you think about their back catalogue and what games mm. you like, if you could take any console with you, what console would it be? Man. Oh, that is a... Oh, it's easy to say, I guess, PS4, because PS4 has all the games it has, plus a massive back catalogue of PS1 classics. Like, I can play Final Fantasy PS1 games on my PS4 if I want to. Um, if I'm just if I'm just talking about the games that came out on that console, then I'd probably say PS1. Yeah. Uh, but, but in terms of the hardware, just, you know... It would have to be uh, PS4. I really love my PS4. It's an amazing console. I can't. I wouldn't be able to choose between PS. What What are the rules? Am I allowed to play like You're not PS1 a... classics and things on my PS4, uh... or do I just have to have the games that came out in that era? If I have to just have the games that came out in that era, I'd go play PS1. Let's say the games that came out in that era. The games right, that then. came out specifically for that console. All right, then I'd have to go PS1. Then I think because that was just a golden age of JRPGs. And like a, like the fantasy novel reading nerd that I was, I just devoured them. Absolutely loved them. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's yours to take and those eight games as well. So, Rob, thank you so much for coming on. As I said, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I, I adore your Friday features and it's been great chatting to you today about the games that you, you've sort of talked about a lot passionately on yeah. PlayStation Access. So it's lovely to get a little bit more in-depth with those. Yeah. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so before we go, please tell the wonderful people who have listened to this episode where they can find you on the internet and what they should be checking out of yours. Um, well, you can find me on PlayStation Access, which is YouTube, a YouTube channel, PlayStation Access. And basically, as I said before, my job is just to make list features which are called Friday Features, and I make them every Friday, obviously. Um, And I do stuff across the channel as well. Um, Don't do so much writing for kind of outlets anymore. Mainly it's all just the the video stuff for access. So, yeah, do check those out because they've become my life's work. I don't know how long, I don't know how long they can last for. Well, you've got next week, you've got next week's episode in the bag anyway. Yeah, you've, yeah, you've got yeah. you've got the dessert. <laughs> <laughs> that that's one idea that can keep you going for another week. Keep the yarn yeah. spinning <laughs> for another week. Um, yes, Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much, and thank you to everyone who listened to this episode, and thank you for listening to the show. Um, don't forget that you can download Final Games on iTunes and 
rate it and review it. That really does help out and that cool sort of thing you can do. You can also go to SoundCloud as usual and you can find all the episodes on SoundCloud. Um, you can also get the podcast on Acast. I also forget I forget very often that it is on Acast as well. So if you prefer to listen to your shows on Acast, you can do so as well. Um, don't forget that we are running this this new Deus Ex competition thanks to Square Enix uh, giving me a copy to give away to you listeners of the show. So if you want to enter that, take a picture of yourself playing your favorite game, listening to Final Games, send it to me on Twitter at Final Games Show or email it in finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening to Final Games and I hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.